This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you and uh, happy, I guess, Video Games Day. You got to love it. If... Oh, man. Good memories. Made it through childhood with some video games. Really? Which ones? Atari. I used to play my Atari set, but then I loved football. I always liked Intellivision. I also had an Intellivision, not to brag, because that meant I was rich. Okay. Uh, even though I've really... never even heard of that. You I don't haven't? think. Oh, I've heard of Atari. Intellivision was Intelligent Vision. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Best video games ever, but it was almost too good for its own... You know, good. Isn't that interesting? All the best video games existed when we were kids. Yeah. All the new ones with all the, you know, yeah, the movement gun and guns and... Don't, yeah. But I don't know if Terry believes that. Terry, Not at all. as an adult, has what? been playing... He you... plays more video games now than he probably did as a child. No. No. I, I'm an adult. I don't have time, but... Yeah. Uh, you used to. Like, before the I, flood. I will as my child continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Because right now, it's like I have to... Um, Censor, you could say? Yeah. Kind of pull back. There's certain uh, topics, certain, you know, games that really aren't appropriate for a little kid. Right. But, you know, at some point. Like, what game game wouldn't be appropriate that you would play? Call of Duty. Oh. Can't can't play that with a little kid. Yeah. Murder of Duty. It's not murder. It's 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 simulation of war. It's different. What I think is fantastic is now in the in the games. You tell me. I don't get to play them at all. But like when you um, kill somebody in Call of Duty, don't they just evaporate? No. Or do they just sit there and flail? Depends on the, on the version. There's definitely you play. twitching and uh, gurgling. When, yeah. when I was a kid, they a uh, couple of the games I had had a um, how did they like a violence meter? Oh, oh cool. So you had a little toggle. You could like really push Show it way how down. Violent you wanted it to, or be. you could just do it way over the top. Wow. So in this so, version, I want his head to fall off. Yeah, it's just... I want this one really violent, In this Mom. version, I want them to go out for a cup of cocoa the after one, they're finished fighting. <laughs> the ones that really got me were the racing simulation games for some reason. Why? Just, you could... It was like endless adjustments that you could make to a car to try to figure out how to make it go around the track faster and faster faster and And it just kind of got addicted. Once you figured out how to do it, you're like, oh, wait, I can just tweak this little thing here and all of a sudden you'd get... A little bit faster, a little bit faster. Holy And cow. then it started affecting the way you drove your actual car. Yeah. My wife would look over and she goes, why are you doing that again? Because I'm like cutting the corner through yeah. the neighborhood just right. So I didn't, you know. I saw this one guy's uh, like uh, cover on his license plate that um, he's obviously like a, an addict to these video games. He's so addicted. And it says, until the last brain cell dies. That Whoa. Was a, that was a gift? Hmm. What was that? It was a gift for my wife. So the last brain cell dies. Yeah. So, you know, we would we'd always play Street Fighter 2, and every time my mom would come in and we were fighting Chun-Li, who's a female, mm. she would say, why are you hitting a girl? That's a great point. Right. And you're like, Mom, watch this, because she's crazy good. She's got nunchucks. <laughs> yeah. Look what she can do with that leg. This lady can destroy us all, Mom. We must take her out. Well, man, speaking of destruction, you don't need video games anymore. All you need to do is look at the aftermath of Irma. Irma destroyed about 25% of the houses in the Florida Keys. Right. That is, that's just tragic. There's boats in the middle of 
intersections. It's just you just lifted them right chaos. out of the water, put them on the shore, and they're uh, just it looks like a it looks like a, a highway car pileup you see in the Midwest when there's fog and yeah. ice and everything. All the boats just crammed together. So I mean, a this is going to cost a lot of money. But B, you got to – how do people get back to their life when their life is scattered about the neighborhood? Right. I mean, a good in, question. In, in Just Houston, start over. In Houston, the kids are getting back to school for the first day of school today, I believe. Oh, in boy. In some places. Plus they've like lost weeks a couple weeks. Yeah. Now they're going to have to go way into next summer. Mm. And summer in Houston, it's horrible. Boy. Can you imagine going to your house and it's not there? Nope. It's everywhere. Can't imagine it. Horrible. Horrible stuff. Especially in like the – some of these countries don't have a, a prayer of re, oh, these you know, I, the recouping. Islands. Yeah. 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 French president uh, – what's his name? Not sure. Macron. Macron. There you go. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's apparently heading to the Caribbean to, to look at some of the islands that they I guess some are French. Protectorates, yeah. they call them, yeah. There's a Dutch island also and so there's – these other countries are trying to take care of, of what they can. There's some cruise ships from uh, Royal Caribbean yeah, that are sending to, supplies. And going to pick people up, I guess, because there, uh, there was like 2,000 people stranded on an island. They're going to yeah. pick them up. Where are you going to take them? Florida. Well, I know, but Florida's got its own problems. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> like they, maybe they need to take them up to New York. Oh, they could do that. But That would be fun. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to leave a hurricane area, what better way to go than in the Royal Caribbean? Hmm. Unless ever... something happens to the Royal Caribbean. Yeah, but have you ever tried their all-you-can-eat buffet? Oh, to top notch. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's the first time I tried caviar. By the <laughs> way, an la- all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> last time I tried caviar. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to try caviar. It's kind of The cleanup crew is very familiar with the caviar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a big seller there. Uh, today, by the way, we're going to talk about um, how the world became consumers. It really is a fascinating article by uh, Dr. Frank Trentman about beginning to end kind of the mentality of consumerism where having – buying the latest, the greatest, having to have uh, all of these toys and gadgets and things, um, it used to be just a sign of major moral decline. Hmm. And then now, now it's – Now it's a status symbol. Now it's a status symbol. Maybe you can talk about the new – thousand dollar iphone yeah, x I, I wanted to because like you don't need the x because does the x do anything extra special facial recognition exactly not so, not important what this isn't a bionic man series yeah like surface charging i'll just set it down on some like a plate or some sort of hold little... it isn't that doesn't doesn't samsung's phone do that this is the iphone though matt yeah no where have they been if it can They've vacuum, perfected it. If oh, it can okay. vacuum for me or wash the dishes, I'll spend it. I'll spend a grand. Sure, well, it probably can. Well, there's probably an app connected to another device you can purchase, <laughs> and you'll have that control so over I, your vacuum. I got to buy more. Is what you're saying? Yes, yeah. it's all but, about consumerism. But in buying more, guess what you get? You get to be more receipts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll just take my family on a Caribbean. By cruise. the way, uh, the Latin word for um, listen to this. Tell me if this mm. sounds familiar. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the word luxus? Lexus? Not I drove close. one one time. Lux- Luxor? Latin, the Latin word for luxury was Lexus. Hmm. So a Lexus would be kind of probably the Japanese Latin version of luxury cars. What about Alexa? No, Alexa is uh, Latin for eavesdropper that could put you in prison. Hmm. We've had stories about that actually happen. That darn Alexa. <laughs> 
So you got to watch out for that. So we will be talking about uh, how the world became consumers. And it's interesting. There's been a lot of debate about it and it and it still rages on. And meanwhile, the rest of us just keep consuming and consuming and consuming. Mm. Even when you think it would decline, apparently in Sweden, um, people purchased like – what was it? 30 times more clothes last – in 2017 than they did in 2011. Wow. Hmm. We're consuming a lot of clothes. Well, at least their wardrobe is diverse. Yeah. They look great. <laughs> what a great group there. So we'll get to all of that fun plus, of course, headlines, empty news and other stories. But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? Hurricane Irma is still wrecking havoc in South Carolina late Monday after causing nine, at least nine deaths. Now I've heard at least 10 in Florida, Georgia and South Carolina. A flash flood emergency issued for Charleston Monday after... Afternoon as Irma was downgraded to a tropical storm, battering the southeast and torrential rain and uh, dangerous storm surges. Irma brought heavy rain and wind to Atlanta Monday night. Brunswick, Georgia, recorded of six inches of rain Monday, and uh, what Buford, uh, South Carolina, registered 5.9 inches. Uh, Monday, if you saw the pictures of this, Jacksonville, downtown Jacksonville, Florida, just had storm surges racing through the streets. And people just trying to look like, wait, is that my bank? Wait. Hold on. Is that my, yeah. It's crazy. Just the amount of water moving through Florida right now because of rivers overflowing and just the storm just keeps churning forward. Uh, It says much of the Florida Keys is without power and water. All three of the Keys hospitals, including their emergency rooms, are closed. County officials said a dawn to dusk curfew is in place. Parts of U.S. Route 1 are open. But the southern end are are closed off as they continue to try to inspect bridges. Yeah. They said some of the bridges are the uh, the type that open draw bridges so that the the boats can go through. They were left open during the storm so the people wouldn't try to cross these bridges, and they may have been bent. And if that's the case, they'll have to replace them. So uh, yesterday, the uh, um, he's a deputy of the on the Homeland Security Department saying that uh, this is the biggest electrical electricity uh, project ever now to reconnect Florida to the grid. Oh my heavens! All these people are yeah, without power. Yeah, how many power. like six million people or whatever? Yeah, much of the state still struggling to stay on with power. So just <laughs> oh, having electricity, and the rest of us are just complaining about going to work. Right. Hmm. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, other news. President Trump's aide, Hope Hicks, who has been serving as the White House interim communications director since August, has been officially promoted to permanently, to permanently lead the White House communications team. Oh. oh. Okay. So she's 28 years old. Yeah. Wow. It's been like a long-term She's been PR for aide. Ivanka yeah. and Trump. And uh, so she's been there from the beginning. She's yeah. loyal, all this stuff. Um, in other news, Hope Hicks and other, uh, several other White House aides have retained lawyers for the Russia investigation. Is now that uh, Mo- um, what Mueller wants to talk with them because he's focusing on obstruction of justice, specifically with the firing of James Comey. And apparently all that uh, White House, uh, what, the Oval Office access from these aides, where they just walk in the door. Yeah, right. They all were in the room when Trump was talking about why he wanted to fire Comey. And there's this document that Trump wrote that explains that it was because of the Russia investigation. Yeah. And Mueller has that document, so he has to talk to everyone who was involved and in the room. And so every one of these aides is now having to hire someone that's like a thousand bucks an hour. Yeah. They don't have the money. Isn't that so. interesting, too? Because then, uh, did you hear what Steve Bannon said about the whole Comey firing? I just Probably not something that he would have done that way. Yeah. And then they asked him, what about Jared Kushner being the one, yeah. the force behind it? He goes, no comment. I wasn't in the room for that. 
Interesting. Also, the White House aides are being told not to lie for the president when questioned. Great. Wrong. That's good advice, right? Great advice. We had to give Jeff the same advice not to lie for me. He's like, stop lying for Matt. (laughs) That guy lies even when I didn't have to have him lie. The United Nations Security Council unanimously agreed to new sanctions against North Korea on Monday in response to the country's uh, nuclear test. Earlier this month, all 15 Security Council members agreed to set an, uh, economic sanctions that banned exports on North Korea textiles and limited the country's imports of crude oil. It was actually a, uh, a watered-down version yeah. of the bill because they wanted to get China and Russia involved and they weren't going to go with the original text. It was so too much. Yeah, so now it's been diluted to what? Uh, Anything usable? Let's see here. Are they really going to... The Security Council initially considered a tougher set of sanctions that would have banned oil imports, but agreed to a more moderate draft in order to gain China and Russia's support. China buys nearly 80% of North Korea's textile exports and supplies most of the crude oil to the country. Mm. So China's like, well, you know, we get a lot of money from them. We kind of need their stuff. Also, the Senate passed a uh, resolution uh, saying they do not like white supremacists. Okay, good. So got that. I on, do not like on the them, books. Sam. I am. It's on the books. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that a wasn't that a cartoon? A Russian politician, a member of the Duma, which is their Congress, basically, yeah. uh, said U.S. intelligence missed it when Russia intelligence stole the president of the United States. Hmm? Made the remark on a Russia TV show Sunday evening with Vladimir Solonov. Ooh, another Vlad. Yeah. The episode centered on the U.S. D- diminishing power in the world stage and the resulting chaos. Uh, and so the guy said that a, a example of that is the way that their security services missed the fact that we stole their president from them. <laughs> do you not? Okay. Do you not know that we stole your president? So, well, we'll see if that was a joke. I'm not sure. I hope so. Sometimes Russian humor kind of, we miss that in this country. Well, let's ask Jeff about it because Jeff um, lived in Russia. Yeah. For a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, Russians, are they funny? Let's just say their sense of humor is dry. There you go. So we'll see. But it's a dry humor. But you just dropped that and everybody went, what? Yeah. Uh, also, this new study out from uh, wallethub.com. Oh, yeah. Happiest states in America. Really? They, okay, they, what are they? They have metrics, how emotionally and physically well the citizens are, work environment, community gauges such as average leisure time, and the volunteerism rate. Really? That's how they get they gauge whether you're happy or not. Sure. M- most happy, Minnesota. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. Out of 100, they got 71. Well, they have a fun accent, so who wouldn't be happy with that accent? They have millions of lakes. The rest of the t- the top five: uh, Utah, Hawaii, California, and Nebraska. <gasps> really, Utah. We're and happy. I have ties to California, so I'm like the happiest. Have you guy. been to Hawaii? I have been to Hawaii. See, so you're like running all of them. Yeah. Least happy. Uh oh. West Virginia. Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alabama, and Arkansas. I haven't been to any one of those states. By the way, it sounds like Trump states. <laughs> really, when you think about it, that's the Trump, like West Virginia, Alabama. Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alabama, Arkansas, probably, yeah. How can that be? Almost heaven, West Virginia. Yeah, because the word almost heaven. West Virginia is a beautiful place. Holy cow. Have you been so, there? So heaven, I would think, would be the greatest thing in the world, right? Yeah. Almost, Almost is is a pretty good thing too. Mm, so the there's road. that it's much on, of a difference between yeah. heaven and almost. It's on the road to heaven. Aren't we all on the road to heaven? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, depends. I mean, some aren't.
Uh, West Virginia is a beautiful place. So it's so it's the landscape's incredible, incredibly lush green hills. It's beautiful. It's just probably an economic. These are places that are deeply impacted by the economy. I bet. Also, the setting of that movie I told you to go see Logan Lucky. Yeah, haven't mm-hmm. seen it yet. But what's the problem? I told ah. you about it like twenty four hours ago. No, but see, when I leave the great building of BYU Broadcasting, I go start my other job. Come I st- on. I still have to talk to people and write things and I have clients to see. Couldn't you have uh, just skipped your nap yesterday? No. No? How do you think I make it through stage two of every day? <laughs> then I go home and I have stage three with my beautiful family. Yeah. Is that when you squeeze your nap time in? That's usually when I hit my Netflix. Okay. Because <laughs> I get home and no one's home. But it's, it's like, family time because they're in the house somewhere. No, no one's even home. Wow. And that's family time? Yeah. My wife and I, we just sit there and look at each other and eat our oatmeal. Family time. So are you uh, related to Don Draper or Walter White? Are they in like the family? It. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. By the way, what's funny about your reference there? I knew who both of them were. Of course you did. Totally strange. Which is weird because a lot of times when you make a reference like that, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you're more well-versed in the Netflix realm than I am. But Well, the problem is I probably have seen significantly more, but I don't really watch them. I just turn them on and then I work. Like I'll write. I need like something on when I'm writing. It stimulates my brain. Do any of those catchphrases from those shows ever creep into your yes. writing? Uh-huh. Like give me the blue stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I'm the one who knocks. Yeah, I don't see, I don't remember that. See, you're, that's your brain. Your brain remembers these catchphrases. I don't remember that. That's probably why I'm not into Marvel comics. Can't remember any of their names. Well, they're all kind of the same too. So. There's Lizard Man. There's Big Muscly Flying Super Dude. Wrong. There's Batman with the great belt and the funny little sidekick. Robin. See, I know you got two. that one right. Yeah, but I I learned that when I was young. That hasn't changed much. Was it the the uh, rhyme? Uh, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. Robin laid an egg. The Batmobile lost its wheel. And the Joker got away. Yeah. I can't even remember that. I'm losing my mind because of all this technology. Anyway, we'll get to all the fun, folks. But uh, we we can't not take a break. So we will take a break and then guess what we're going to do? Come back and get into it. How the world became a world of consumers Interesting discussion up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Things, things, and more things. Today we live in a world where we, where all we do seems to be is, is consuming more and more and more. We need more than ever before. In fact, we even need things that maybe we didn't even know we needed a while ago. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, all this consumerism? Well, here to speak to us today about it is uh, Frank Trentman, the author of the book The Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. And Frank Trentman is a professor of history at Burke. Beck College in the University of London. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes. Hello. How are you? Good, good. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Um, it's really, I, I, loved, uh, I loved reading about your work because 
when we think of consumerism, we, we kind of just think it's it's a it's a it's a new thing. But really, um, there there is an incredible and deep history of of consumerism. And um, one of the things that that kind of shocked me about it is uh, it, it's it's kind of has gone from through this history of being a morally good thing to be a consumer or a bad thing to be a consumer because you know it's just one of the it's just one of the great sins of the world to then kind of turning to being a more positive uh neutral thing and and so where are we today frank when it comes to consumerism uh, overall is is it is it good or bad for society to uh, to take on this idea of of consuming and consuming a very important question um, uh, you raise, and, and never more relevant than today, really. Um, today, I think we're stuck um, and uh, pretty much in a big mess and confused because we have a clash of um, effectively two views and um, lifestyles that concern consumption. On the one hand, um, we live uh, most most of us, and certainly your listeners, we live in democratic societies where we believe people should have free choice and um, should live the lives and consume what they please, and that people shouldn't intervene, not regulate too much, and certainly not prohibit or punish them for uh, consumption as long as it doesn't harm others. But then on the other hand, we are now living a affluent lifestyle like never before that's burning through the planet and that's not sustainable. Mm. Um, so we're on a collision course really between an older political um, morally positive view of consumption and one that's environmentally disastrous. Do you know what? And it's interesting. I could almost see that that consumerism now takes on maybe and maybe it already is in your research a more environmental uh, view as well. Well, it does, um, and, and there are many precursors. Um, and in fact, uh, movements in America have uh, for some time been at the cutting edge. So the ethical consumer movements, political consumer movements, um, people who want to um, slow down or the so-called minimalists who want to live with fewer possessions. But so far, really, these are movements at the margin. I think one has to be quite realistic. I don't want to um, scare your listeners or be pessimistic. There are plenty of good stories in history which alert us to the fact that change is possible. But at the moment, really, we live in a situation where governments work on the assumption um, that it's up to individuals if they want to change. But the problem, of course, is cons our consumer culture is not an individual um, uh, choice. Um, we live certain lifestyles because the community around us ticks to a certain rhythm. It's mm. not that individuals dream up motorways or that individuals suddenly fantasize about a car. We have certain social patterns that are very intensive when it comes to consuming. So um, if a city is built around the automobile, it's very difficult for individuals just to say, no, I'm not going to participate. Right. Well, and in fact, in the United States, there's big discussions about uh, tax breaks, restructuring the tax code with the whole idea that if people had more money in their pocket, they could go spend more money. <laughs> And um, you sit there and you think, so the whole 
movement of our government then is to facilitate better and more transactions uh, commercially. Uh, that's correct. I mean, in um, really in the 18th century, uh, for the first time, uh, observers and uh, people we now call economists, like Adam Smith, uh, awoke uh, to the fact that consuming wasn't a drain on society, but that, in fact, when some people consumed or wanted new goods or fashions, this created work and it created innovation and productivity and enriched a country. And since then, um, capitalist societies uh, increasingly embraced consuming as an engine of growth. Now, the problem with that, of course, is there are different kinds of consuming. So you can consume in a more sustainable way or in a less sustainable way. It makes a difference mm. um, if you um, drive a um, car with a big engine um, that guzzles through 10 gallons um, a minute or if you have a more efficient car and if you drive less or less often. And I think that's where we, at the moment, are a little bit rudderless, is that um, with a few exceptions, like alcohol and drugs, or in the case of Italy, um, very, very fancy big yachts, um, governments treat all consumption as a little bit um, equal. Yeah. And in fact, uh, talk about the word consumption. You, In your article in The Atlantic, you pointed out it comes from a really interesting uh, you know, base and Latin word um, that uh, is also, you know, connected to um, disease and and even Christ's last words on the cross. Yes, that's right. So the, I mean, the original word, um, consumer, really refers to something being used up. So imagine a carpenter who um, works away at a piece of wood to make a table the um, wood chips um, that ended up on the um, workshop uh, floor, those were considered um, in the past as something that has been consumed. And from there, it wasn't very far in the English language to talk of tuberculosis as um, consumption. Hmm. The body was effectively eaten up. Um, to complicate things, is um, there's a second um, a Latin word which sounds very similar has um, an additional um, M, uh, consumare, and that's Christ's last word, consumatum est, as if um, something is accomplished or finished. Mm. But there was in both of these there was an idea that um, consuming is something that has a finite um, moment in it, and it's only really in the 17th and 18th century where um, that negative connotation loses uh, some of its purchase and people start to talk of consuming as something that involves purchase and choice or in the 19th century fantasizing about desires. So women uh, in particular going to the department stores suddenly talk of consuming, um, consuming fashion so where consumption becomes a um, hobby or a lifestyle. And then by the years around 1900, for the first time, you have people talking of themselves or others as consumers, um, as people who they said represented the public interest, because ultimately everyone's a consumer, but only a 
few people are farmers or steel workers, but everyone was a consumer. Hmm. And people argued that gave them a kind of um, collective right and also duty to use their purchasing power for higher ends, such as um, rewarding companies that paid minimum wages or punishing companies that used cheap child labor. So, so that it tends, I guess, to be the positive side of it. Um, the other side of it, though, is we have we now have the wasting disease, and you know many wonder if the world's not finished. Um, here's one, another point you made that I thought was so so interesting was uh, in the article was from um, nineteen or seventeen fifty nine uh, the theory of moral sentiments from Adam Smith. You um, basically were citing some of his his push. You said people he observed were stuffing their pockets with little conveniences and then buying coats with more pockets to carry even more by themselves. Tweezer cases, elaborate snuff boxes and other baubles might not have much use. But Smith pointed out what mattered was that people looked at them as a means of happiness. I mean, today, even hearing that, that. They're buying all of these little conveniences, and then they have to buy more coats and pockets to carry them. Uh, it reminds me of everybody kind of in the United States where we have so much stuff, we now have to get storage units just to hold them. That's right. You need Mac mansions, and you need um, um, stored, um, stored yourself facilities. I mean, the interesting thing about Smith is he did not, I mean, what you cited is absolutely right, but he he then added, you know, um, because he was um, a very shrewd observer of people around him, he pointed out, well, of course, because people buy snuff boxes or coats with more pockets to carry their their baubles, doesn't mean they automatically become happy. I mean, so he was Mm. aware um, that this this. This was a sort of um, hope rather than reality. And he pointed out that um, on their deathbed, people then looked around and they see all the stuff they've accumulated and they ask themselves, you know, was this it? (laughs) Was this really what life was about? Um, Somehow I didn't get happy. But he he then, Smith also added, is what really mattered was the, um, the prospect of um, expanding um, and enriching your life. So it's not necessarily whether we are happy, but that a lot of consumer goods give us, at least for a moment, the idea that we can live life better or differently. That it then turns out to be not always true, it's a different matter. Mm. But I think that's a serious point we need to um, take on because it explains the power of consumer culture in our societies, is that people aren't just um, stupid or brainwashed. A lot of the stuff people consume comes with the potential of doing something or experiencing something that otherwise you wouldn't. Yeah, and in fact... That's why people do it. Talk talk about that, because it seems like there is a trend in economics today where uh, maybe these millennial generation especially might be opting to spend their money more on experiences, maybe travel, trips, than they are willing to spend it on things, mortgages, and other debt. Yes, there's a lot of talk about um, that, um, but... um from the research uh, that I cite in the book, um, it's also clear there's a lot of um, misunderstanding or even um, illusion about it. 
And the first thing to say is that um, there's never in the past or at present been a neat, sharp separation between objects and goods on the one side and experiences on the other. Mm. A lot of um, uh, what is part of consuming is both. So when people go shopping, um, that's not just um, all about uh, purchasing an item. It's partly about the experience of going shopping. That's why there are malls and department stores and so forth. That's, you know, they want it to be fun. So the two have been linked for a long time. In the 18th century, when we see a massive increase in the um, items um, people acquire and, um, and, and showcase in their homes, that's also the period where we see an increase in experience and spectacle. So think of Handel's fireworks, which closed down bridges in London because so many people wanted the experience of listening to the music and seeing the fireworks. So just because you like experience doesn't automatically mean people turn away um, from goods. And if you look at data on inventories, how many clothes people have, um, the amount of stuff they have in their lives, um, yes, perhaps some young people no longer buy a car, but um, um, uh, join a car-sharing um, facility. But look at their wardrobes. I mean, people today have more clothes than True. they did 20 years ago. Look at furniture. Most people who say, oh, I want to share, I believe in sharing. Um, yes, that's true for certain things, like perhaps travel um, and sharing someone's uh, uh, holiday apartment. But when it comes to their own home, how many people actually um, in the United States, or for that matter in Europe, share houses and flats no increasingly the assumption is one person's um, one every person should have their own flat and their own television and their own computer and their own fridge and so forth so um i'm not as optimistic as some prophets are about this shift away from stuff and you don't have to be a prophet you just have to live um anywhere near coastline and look out to the ocean and you notice that container ships are getting bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger and they're not just carrying experiences they're carrying <laughs> stuff and and the materials needed to make stuff well and it seems like in the end um it, that what's going to happen is that the experience will become where will be where consumers Move. So we've had on the show talking about malls and how you know a lot of malls are emptying out because yes. the kind of box mall doesn't work anymore. So now what they want are more experiential malls where you can go climb a wall and you can go on a Ferris wheel and then go buy your your goods. Um, so it's, it's I guess the consumption of experience then becomes the next formal overt consumption as well. But you're saying there's a paradigm well, underneath I, I this that we're still consumers. Yes, I think, I think the examples you cite about the transformation of retail spaces and malls are, are spot on. But, I mean, this is where history um, uh, is quite useful as a perspective to have, because we today, we tend to think everything that happens is new. And, and so there are lots of people who see new eras and paradigm shifts and a new universe and so forth. But the example you just cited about malls having to reinvent themselves that you know, already happened in the years around 1900 when the first department stores realized that to attract customers, they couldn't just 
um, offer goods um, um, at good prices, they needed to provide their customers with experiences. So Selfridges in London introduced a restaurant, a cafe, a nursery <laughs> um, where the children were entertained. You even had um, um, sort of libraries and, and all sorts of fashion shows attached to these department stores. So this is an ongoing story, I think. It's not something new. Yeah. These are cycles. That's why we need someone like you, Frank, to teach us the history of this. I mean, the history just in the article I read and your book that is enormous. There's so much rich information about consumerism. And we'll continue the discussion with Frank Trentman, professor of history at Birkbeck College in the University of London. Um, Wonderful insight. Also, by the way, the author of the book, Empire of Things, uh, how we became a world of consumers from the 15th century to the 21st century. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happens when our world is so oriented around things, getting things, having things, storing things, what does that do to us, to our psyche, and to really our ability to maybe to connect to one another? All straight ahead with Frank Trentman. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about a world of consumers, the history of uh, consumerism, and uh, how we became a world of consumers. Uh, Frank Trentman joins us. He is a professor of history at Birkbeck College at the University of London, also the author of the book Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. And uh, tr- uh, Frank, the, the research and just the the in-depth view you've taken about consumerism is uh, – it's, it's incredible. Like how much – how much has gone on with people getting into things, uh, being judged for their things, even churches pushing against things? Uh, uh, somewhere you cited a story of a, of a woman being arrested because she had a cotton handkerchief. Um, talk, talk, about, talk about our obsession with things and how over the years and how it's, how it's changed from maybe 15th century to today. Well, yes, um, uh, I think probably fortunately – very few women sporting a fashionable cotton scarf um, will be thrown into into prison or fined a month wages, um, at least in, in most parts of the world. So that that time, um, which still happened in as late as 18th century in, wow. in Germany, that time is gone. We um, no longer think uh, that authorities need to discipline people into a certain lifestyle. Um, so th- in that sense, we have adopted a much, much, much more liberal approach to consumption. But it's perhaps fair to say that we nonetheless retain a very moral um, attitude to it. So um, even today, there's a lot of soul searching about what's the right kind of consumption. Are we doing the right thing? Um, people are seriously, um, I think, sad when they throw uh, food into the waste bin because they realized you know there are other people starving on the planet so we continue to have um, a moral um, attitude uh, to consumption it's just now no longer 
um, regulated by government or by the churches. Interesting, and and it's almost in a way um, that that uh, companies that that sell consumer products, in some regards, are becoming the churches. It it, it almost seems like because like uh, there's a new release I think today of an iPhone. X, which is now their best product. I mean, or that they've named it today. It's not being released today, but it's it's this idea of you'll have a thousand dollar phone, um, and then those companies like Apple and Facebook and some of these big tech companies also then become, in a way, these moral leaders of society. They take on certain issues. They donate money to charities, and and they further the the, the discussion. Um, is there something strange about a consumer model that also is trying, I guess, to be charitable? Um, no, not not in and of itself. I think we have to recall that the first um, organizations in which consumers came together um, – uh, to work together uh, and to improve their community, the consumer cooperatives, and there are still cooperatives right. um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, were um, established on the premise that consumption wasn't just about individual satisfaction. It was also a bridge between individuals that could help um, to foster cooperation and harmony and the cooperatives um, in the 19th century very sincerely believed that they, by um, co-owning and cooperating, could um, improve the state of the world, um, bringing about peace and harmony mm. and the brotherhood of men. You hear that too, right? Even in our politics today, that um, you know we need that we need democracy, but we also need kind of. The free market economy, because that also, like you're saying, facilitates the free market of ideas, the free market of, of, uh, of you know, democracy and of, of equal rights. And so, it, it, are we seeing that that is true? Are we seeing that where well, where consumerism goes, so too is our lives elevated? Well, there is certainly a symmetry between. Um, what consumers do in the marketplace and what citizens do in um, the political place. And many, especially women, um, when they didn't have the vote yet, so um, you know, just over a century ago, they were making the argument that what's the difference if, if a um, housewife on, um, who has to feed her family on very little money, if she has to go into the marketplace and make complicated decisions, should she buy this product, should she buy this bread, um, should she go to this shop or someone else, if she can do all of that, then surely um, she has the wits to decide um, at election time whether she's going to make her cross next to one candidate on, or to another. So there is there's a you know, a parallel between choosing um, in the marketplace and choosing in a democratic system. And um, I think that symmetry re retains its significance. I think what has changed um, in the last hundred years is that many of the most vocal and politically influential consumer groups 
Um, so the National Consumer League in the United States in the years before the First World War was agitating and working on the premise that um, consumption is life, they said, but consumption is also duty. It, um, it's not just purchase. It's more than that. Um, by consuming, people reflect on what they really need, what their desires are, but they should also reflect on what the consequences are of their actions. So consumers were asked to really step up to the plate and use their purchasing power to alleviate and root out all sorts of abuses. Now, there are still some movements today which try and do that. Um, so we have fair trade movements, for example, things like that. But ultimately, most consumers and most consumption is now no is, is, is sort of a little bit divorced from the kind of social and political reform uh, mission that these earlier uh, proponents had. And I think that has changed. Yeah. No, and I think – oh, Frank, I wish we had more time because you've got, I know, so much great insight and research on – how we how we could use consumerism to make it a safer place to fight so we we don't have as many exploding cars today the minute there's an impact because of you know actually becoming socially active in our consuming um and we see it uh, there's there's power for i think all of us as uh, as people who are pulling the purse strings to to demand certain levels of quality, certain levels of uh, labor, who can labor, who should be making our products, who shouldn't. Um, there's power there. So we appreciate Frank Trentman, uh, professor of history at Birkbeck College, University of London. Go find the book Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st Century. Again, our goal on the show is to help elevate the conversation, also elevate our lives. Let's not just be consumers. Let's be consumers with, uh, with morals, with standards that elevate the rest of the world. We'll continue the journey. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball. I think we've all learned that uh, it is the nature, I think, of most humans to... You know, the minute you have enough money or, or get some money, you, you you want to spend. You want to start to, I guess, hang things and adorn yourself with, with interesting stuff. There's a story that came from CNN, a university student in South Africa who discovered an error that was made in her student loan financial aid department in, in her account where she, she received a deposit of $1 million in her financial aid. In, this is in in South Africa, right? And so she immediately um, they immediately started spending as much money as they possibly could, and ended up spending sixty thousand dollars of the one million dollars before authorities realized the mistake. And then uh, you know because and by the way, it was turned in because everyone around this student was noticing what a great incredible life that she was living. Um, so. It's kind of natural, right? Now this person is in major trouble and um, because I think they they generally don't make $60,000 in five or ten years um, in, in the biggest city and some of the best jobs in South Africa. So 
Anyway, crazy, uh, crazy life. And I think it's natural for us to do that. But go home or just when you have a chance today, think about your consumption. Are you, are you actually wasting away in the things of life? Are you caught up in the thick of the thin things? Because if so, it, it might be time that we all make a little change, start simplifying, pulling back. Less is more. Let's get ahead by subtraction instead of more and more and more addition. That's the Matt Townsend Show. Continue with us through the journey. We'll be back. This is uh, BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, good friends. Today we got so much to do. Sure, sure, it's just Tuesday. But uh, don't look at it as a Tuesday. Look at it as the day after Monday. Does that help, Jeff? That helps. You perked right up. Surprisingly. Yeah. Tuesday is the day you get ready for Wednesday, and Wednesday is the day you're halfway through the week. Now, that's that's if you're just trying to count your days. And bide your time. But maybe you're trying to take advantage of life. That's why we do the show. Give you the latest, the greatest research information you need to know. Today we're going to be uh, revisiting an interview we did about how to get over your own kind of self-importance. Like how to quit seeing everything is about you. But what if we don't want to get over that? <laughs> that, that may be the problem. So we will show you how to do that. We'll actually talk about it. We won't show it because this is radio. Talk about good. Talk about good. We've got uh, a lot to cover as well. And again, our prayers are going out now really to everybody impacted by Irma. Harvey and Irma, who would who would have ever thought that such a couple would have brought such devastation to uh, the United States and the Caribbean? I know. It sounds more like a 70s sitcom. It Harvey really and Irma. Har- Do you remember that sitcom Harvey and Irma? Oh, came in like a storm and out like a storm. Didn't get very good ratings, apparently, according to our studio audience uh, fans here. Uh, we are going to also um, be, of course, today in this hour doing what we call the empty news, the Matt Townsend news. The news, the stories you you don't always hear, but they're important to get to because there's a life lesson in every one of them. Um, one of them that we for sure will have to talk about is armed men using uh, accused of holding up a bar where cops were celebrating a colleague's retirement. Hmm. Always choose your your location. The, you location, know, in. location, location. Yeah. You don't want to choose the bar where the cops are having a celebration. No. Can you imagine? You go in there, give me all your money, and then 20 cops – Freeze. Unless they serve like really good cheese fries there or something. Yeah, but you wouldn't have time to eat them. Really? Yeah. I think as a crook, if you held up a restaurant, you'd you'd want to snatch as much food up as you could. Yeah. In addition to the cash. Give me all your money and those cheese fries. To go. <laughs> <laughs> and don't put jalapenos on them. They upset my stomach. Freeze. <laughs> yeah, so you don't want to get caught up in ordering because then your your eye is off the ball and you're probably going to then be in the next cops movie. Come on, though. Have you had those chilies, chips and salsa? Mm. 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 Hey, today, by the way, we will also be covering a story of a woman from Maine 
who falls asleep at the wheel with a goat, I guess, in her car. Yeah. A goat. Maybe she was counting them. <laughs> and that's why she fell asleep? Doubt it. Hmm. That very was few people very count, negative. Very few people count goats. I mean, I remember we had a dream expert on the other day and a sleep expert. And he's like, yeah, no one counts goats. They count sheep. Yeah, but what if you're allergic to sheep? <laughs> uh, not to brag, and I don't know if you've ever been raised – if you've ever raised goats. But I had a neighbor who did, and I got to take care of his goats for a couple weeks in the summer once. Really? Have you ever milked a goat? I have not had the privilege. Well, you've missed out. <laughs> this guy totally tricked me. He tricked me. He's like, Matt, can you just – my family's going out of town. Can you just come help me do some chores when I'm gone? We, we need someone to take care of the animals. And then they moved out. Yeah, then they never came back. <laughs> and I went over there and I'm like, how hard could it be to feed some animals? But then he's like, ah, we'll pay you really well, but I need you to milk the goat. He's diabetic. He's, uh, <laughs> he's got stage three cancer. Yeah, he's a good goat. But it, goats, you know, even – they don't want to be milked. I'm betting nobody does <laughs> or nothing does. And uh, the reality is he set me up and then for about a week or two, I milked a goat. And, and that's a cow. See, this is how familiar I am with yeah. barn animals. Yeah, not even close. We got to teach you the goat sounds. Um, so someday I'll let you in on the goat story, how you, how you milk a goat when you don't know how. And I spent the first – hour of the first day just chasing the goat to get him on the rack to milk, milk that little goat. Then I even quit in the middle of it and said, this isn't happening. Can't milk it. And I think somebody I – I think I even went home and somebody said, well, you got to milk it. Milk it for all it's worth, you I gotta, think. You, you can't leave a goat unmilked. It's going to create problems. That's what grandma said. Good old grandma had the greatest insight. So we'll get to uh, all of those fun stories. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should all be paying attention to? Hurricane Harvey and Irma caused between $150 billion and $200 billion in damage to Texas and Florida, comparable to the cost from uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005, according to a preliminary estimate for Moody's Analytics on Monday. Hurricane Harvey battered Houston with record amounts of rain and flooding last month, while Irma slammed Florida and other southeastern coastal states and is still causing havoc. But uh, Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody Analytics, says rebuilding from the back-to-back storms will boost the U.S. economy in the fourth quarter of this year and into 2018. Lots of Lots of hmm. building, lots of... Things happening, Lots economic growth, yeah. and who's going to take credit for it? Right. And are they going to say it's hurricane, or are they going to say... Well, when you throw down that much money, it's it's just investing into the economy. Right. Will this be the infrastructure package that was being talked about? I Will think this it's take going, its place? some of that money is going to have to go from there, right? It's got to. There's only so much money to go around. Right. But the problem is some of that infrastructure didn't have a problem until a week ago. I mean, there's other infrastructure in the country that is, like, disintegrating. Right. It needs a, every overpass in the country. Yeah. The report was correct from a couple of years ago. The Supreme Court on Monday issued a temporary stay on President Trump's travel ban with regards to the entrance of refugees, squashing the opportunity for about 24,000 refugees to come to the United States. Central parts of the ban have been blocked by two appeal courts 
Uh, since it was first issued in January, one court said the executive order unconstitutionally discriminated based on religion. The other said Trump exceeded his statutory authority to control immigration. The Trump administration is now challenging the, these lower court rulings in the Supreme Court. The court did not lift an appeals court ruling exempting grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins of American citizens from the travel ban that targets six Muslim-majority countries. So more developments Back to this executive order. Still that having was, the banning problem. But it's not a ban. It's just a... No, it's a ban. The president said multiple times it was a ban. It's an official ban now. The White House said, no, it's not a ban, as the president kept saying it was a ban. I thought the president was the White House, and the White House was the president. Apparently not. Not in this White House. When it's on Twitter. Okay. Sure. Which is cause of the issue. Yeah. The Senate Finance Committee, they're grilling Equifax on the security breach that resulted in the leak of approximately 143 million Americans' personal information. Uh, the committee's Republican chairman, uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, and ranking Democrat uh, Senator John Wyden, or Wyden have uh, presented Equifax with a series of questions on the breach, including information about the three Equifax executives who sold nearly $2 million in stock oh. in the weeks uh, before the breach was announced, leading to questions on whether the executives engaged in insider trading. Hatch and Wyden have reportedly asked when exactly the executives learned about the breach. So they can gauge whether they just went ahead and did that after they found out that their company had been like, seriously I compromised. Got to get out of this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to drop. Oh, brother! And it and it did. So. Yeah. And uh, finally, uh, a fun thing I found this in the Oregonian newspaper. Really? A uh, Forest Grove, Oregon police log. Hmm. And they give you this is their uh, reports of some things that happened in Forest Grove, Oregon. They publish this several you know several times a month. And there's some odd things happening in Forest Grove. What? September 1st, officers responded to a location where suspicious persons were seen crossing through residents' backyards. Police found a couple nearby picking blackberries. Oh, no. Mm. September 2nd, a man contacted police to report that shoe sizes in his apartment were being switched, new food being replaced with spoiled food, and that he struggled with occasional digestive issues. He declined police service with the confidence that divine authority would soon take care of the responsible parties. Uh-oh. <laughs> September 3rd, trouble. an officer assisted two distressed women who had vacated their vehicle on the side of the road after a large eight-legged invader emerged from a vent. The officer performed an extensive search of the vehicle and terminated the spider with extreme prejudice. Police responded, uh, so he killed the spider. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another story on the 3rd, the police responded to a store where a man allegedly stole a cake and other items from the deli. Officers located a man nearby with a fully cooked rotisserie chicken tucked under his arm and a mouthful <laughs> of pizza. He was arrested. Busted. And, Don't uh, they put the chicken down. On the final on September 5th, officers contacted a man acting suspiciously near a convenience store after he was identified uh, after he identified himself as the creator of galaxies and destroyer of worlds. He was asked not to return to the location and moved along without incident. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> Strange. So the destroyer of worlds went, yeah, okay, I'll yeah. move on. Ah, you got me. I mean, even a destroyer of worlds has their limit. Yeah, he realizes loitering is not necessarily the best, so he moved on. <laughs> How <laughs> great is that? Apparently, they published the police blotter, as I said, several times a month. So I love the. I love I'll, uh, the, peruse yeah. those. Boy, that is Forest Grove's got some strange stuff going on up there. Boy, oh boy, did you hear? Um, so you know uh, Branson? What's his name? The big billionaire, Branson, Missouri. No, the guy that owns uh, Virgin Air. Virgin Air, Virgin Atlantic, oh, yeah. Virgin Mobile. 
So they have video on CNN. He owns an island called Necker Island, yes. uh, which is in the Caribbean, and was decimated. And they showed video. If you remember, we talked about it, that he's sitting in there like the night before the big storm playing He's done this a couple game. times now, he yeah. says. It's big hurricanes, big storms. They go down to that, that location and they get down in the cellar and just hang out. I mean, this building that he was in before is literally gutted. Right. It's because it has like glass windows on both sides. And I think they've all been blown out. And literally, all there's no furniture. There's nothing on the walls. It's just a big empty room. And... It, but it does show you the devastation of this hurricane. And by the way, that's to be a billionaire, right? When you're a billionaire and you're on an island and you can hunker down in some, I don't know, some hole somewhere on the island. But he said hundreds of people on the island now homeless without anything. Right. Unbelievable. And island after island after island after island. There's pictures of one island. I don't know if it was habit, uh, if it was anyone lived on the yeah. island, but it's been deforested. Yeah, like just all the, the 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 satellite pictures you see before it was green. Now this island is just strictly brown. All all trees, everything just yeah. wiped right off. the What island. are you doing? All the coconut wow. trees, all the foliage, everything's gone. You just, I guess, you just start over. But this must happen every thirty years on an island like this, right? Like, don't they yeah. get a storm like a major storm? Not a five, but a, a one. Know, yeah, every thirty or forty years. I guess it's nature's way of just cleaning back to my the house. Back to my comment that like Haiti, they just need to take the island and shift it out of yeah, the way for a while. Totally, just, it's man, in the way. Man, if they could move Haiti, like I don't know, move it up by Catalina, <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Uh, let's get to the empty news. Uh, Jeffrey chomping uh, at the bit. Hey, hey Matt. Yeah, hmm? Matt. Yeah. Hmm? Uh, yeah. I'm hearing hmm? word from Ron Brokaw that there's breaking news. Oh, let's get to that then. Representatives of South Central Airlines are denying reports that Flight 321 was in danger as it made its way to New Jersey earlier today. However, we here at the Matt Townsend Show have obtained a copy of a recording taken from inside the cockpit of that plane. Uh, folks, uh, you may have noticed some slight turbulence just now, but uh, as we make our way through these clouds, uh, that, that's to be expected. So uh, just sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of your flight. Are those flight attendants strapped in? Uh, yes, sir, they are. Good. Oh, we're going to need all the luck in the world if we're going to try to make it to New Jersey with only one engine left. Ooh, whoops. I always forget to release the button on this thing when I finish talking. Oh, boy. Wow. Ooh, that would be way unnerving. That's a that's some How do we get that audio? They well, somebody I you know, people with their cell phones these days and then they just send it into to... Ron Brokaw. Yeah. But you can sit in your seat sometimes and put on the headphones and listen to the pilot. Yeah. He just so, recorded it and sent it to us. The crazy thing about this is it's not the only incident uh, or incidents of this happening. So there's a the pilot of a United Airlines flight bound for Newark uh, just the other night, freaked out passengers before takeoff when he warned the plane would be flying through horrific storms, including oh tornadoes, according oh. to the people on board. So, yeah, some, that's a great way to hey, folks, instill we are confidence. we're going to be going through some horrific storms. Yeah. <laughs> 
The warning broadcast over the plane speaker so unnerved the passengers that a flight attendant took to the microphone in an attempt to calm fears on the flight, which had already been delayed two hours, passenger Pamela Kent said. He seemed angry, said Kent a Princeton resident who was traveling with her daughter, Jessica. He said, we're we're going to be flying through horrific storms, including tornadoes. The pilot also instructed passengers aboard the overbooked flight to get to know your neighbors and that the trip to New Jersey would be very turbulent. The pilot then walked (laughs) into the cockpit and shut the door. Uh, United Airlines said it was looking into the incident. So luckily, it's not as bad as only having one engine left. Yeah, but yeah. if you're a pilot and you want people uh, to be comfortable, you probably ought not to do that. Just sit back and relax. We had an airplane that was struck by lightning once as it was as we were trying to land, and the pilot got on after, and this is exactly what he said. <laughs> Whoa! Well, we were just struck by lightning, and uh, <laughs> it seems like everything's going all right now. So we're just going to circle back and try that one more time. And the lady next to me grabs my arm and is doing the rosary, and I'm pretty sure we're going down together. Scary. Yeah, there needs to be better lessons for these pilots on the etiquette of preparing people for a crash. Just their bedside manner. Yeah, it's all all you need. Up next, folks, we'll continue uh, learning together, talking about uh, getting over yourself, importance, and how to to really transcend yourself. Up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Did you know that over 1 million selfies are taken each day? Recent surveys indicate that 34% of men state that they retouch every selfie and 13% of females say they retouch every selfie. It turns out that selfies are most popular in Australia, with the U.S. and Canada following closely after those numbers. Another report estimates that the average millennial could take over 25,000 selfies in a lifetime. Why the rise in selfies, you ask? And does this mean that we are becoming a more self-absorbed society? A few months back, we talked to Dr. Candace Volger, a professor of philosophy from the University of Chicago, about the importance of getting over yourself. I begin the interview by pointing out that this is not a new concept of people becoming too absorbed. No, I don't think there's anything brand new about it. I think it's a kind of central temptation for a whole lot of people and has been for a very long time. Talk to us about um, your research. You did just receive, uh, um, I guess, some money, a grant to, to, to do a research project about getting over yourself. Basically, um, we've got a, what we've got is a $2 million grant from the John Templeton Foundation called Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life. Hmm. Uh, and the inspiration for this grant came from people who are actually leading pretty solid lives um, but find themselves at odds with themselves in all kinds of ways. They're pretty good people. They've got something that looks like a solid family, whatever counts as that for themselves. They've got jobs that don't grind them into the dust. Um, They've got some kind of community. And there's this kind of sense that these lives they've worked so hard to put into place for themselves are hollow. So for me, this started as a question about the difference between people who felt like their lives were hollowed out and people who didn't have that sense, whether or not they were sort of stunningly privileged um, by global standards. Uh, So 
what I what we're doing is getting together a group of 25 very prominent scholars. They're um, cognitive scientists, psychologists, people who do religious studies of various kinds, and philosophers to think about the hypothesis that part of what's going wrong in these lives that seem empty is that people aren't looking far enough beyond themselves to find a sense of meaning. Interesting. That if you can understand your life as lived in relation to something that is that goes well beyond personal expression, personal actualization, and even the safety and comfort of members of your immediate family or community, then you've got a much better chance of being able to enjoy what you've put in place for yourself. Mm-hmm. And find it meaningful in a day-to-day way. And that's self-transcendence, right? It's, and it's, that is self-transcendence. And there's lots of different kinds of it. Well, it, how amazing. Like, this this seems like a, such a novel idea. But it also, <laughs> it's, it blows my mind that this is, like, novel. Like, because you got a headline. One of the headlines was that you actually, you received $2 million for this research. And it's like everyone was surprised. But... Yeah, but this has been going on, and I know you use um, uh, Aquinas um, as as a source of kind of your your philosophical you know underpinning of all of this. But but talk to us, teach us about what why we aren't naturally kind of moving toward transcendence. Well, I mean, from some, if you've got some kinds of religious positions, people think that we are. It's just that we get in our own ways all the time. Hmm. Um, so the figure I work on a lot, as she mentioned, is, is, is Thomas Aquinas, who's a 13th century philosopher and theologian, basically. Um, I'm not myself Catholic, but he's a major source for Catholic theology. Um, but Aquinas's view is that um, the interesting thing about human beings is that we have all these different kinds of capacities and powers. We have emotional and feeling capacities and powers. We sense things and perceive things. We have capacities to love and to think and reason and all this stuff, um, but that um, we, those powers tend not to always cooperate with one another. So, I mean, I sometimes say that, like, in my apartment, the cats that live in my apartment, if they're going for something, it tends to be the kind of thing that's pretty good for cats. Right. Uh, it's play, it's play, it's food, it's right. love, it's whatever. It's a, it's the best place to sit on the windowsill on a sunny day. Um, so they're going at what they, the humans in my apartment have a much harder time going straight for things that are good for human beings. Yeah, It's much easier for us to go after things that um, are not good for us in all kinds of ways. And it's much easier for us to be um, sort of insensitive to the world we're inhabiting, to one another, to all kinds of stuff. And, mm. and it's much easier for us to get caught up psychologically being just very, very worried about... Um, Self-expression, self-actualization, self-enhancement, comfort, all these kinds of things. Um, that, 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 to me, is the American way. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's been the way for a lot of different people. In a lot uh, yeah, of for a lot of different it, it really, yeah. be, but like you, you bet, it's interesting because 
one of the things you brought up in in uh, one of your articles was the fact that you're you're coming at this. So you know, theological scholars would study this more naturally because it's related to their religion, like Aquinas. But um, you're saying psychologists might even study it to some degree. But this is a newer idea to study in philosophy. Yeah, it's actually pretty new in philosophy, um, this way of going about it, even though a lot of our historical sources, if you take a look at them, are basically saying you need to be connected to some good that's bigger than you are yeah, right. in order for things to go well for you. Um, and that's a fairly common theme in a lot of philosophical work um, in, well, European based philosophy, certainly clear in a lot of Asian philosophy. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's really, it's a pretty common thing there. I mean, the, the thing that was most interesting to me is that the term self-transcendence is one that we're taking from empirical psychology. Right. In and, fact, Maslow is the first time I ever heard the word used. Yeah. Like self-actualization, highest, transcendence. Yeah, self-transcendence is higher than self-actualization yeah. in yeah, in his, um, in his yeah. most mature work, <laughs> in the end of the day, he thought self-transcendence is much higher than self-actualization. But that's um, but transcendence is me kind of getting out of me and into helping the the in everyone else. Well, that's – yeah, that's certainly the way that Maslow's understanding it. Um, one of our psychologists – Dan McAdams, who's the chair of the psychology department at Northwestern University, studies it in connection with intergenerational Mm. families. So if I understand the good that I've got as something that was made possible for me by the struggle of ancestors back there, I may not even know their names, right? I mean, ancestors back behind me, and I understand what I'm trying to do here as making some good, possibly good I won't even be able to imagine, possible for people in the future so that my own life is in that kind of multi-generational context, that is a form of self-transcendence. If I'm working for the environment really hard, yeah. um, I'm working for a, for a sustainability or something. I'm working for something that it will benefit um, people I may never meet and other kinds of animals I may never meet as well <laughs> or never see. Right. If I'm, you know, if I'm some incredibly dedicated intellectual who's like, I'm after truth here. Truth is important. I'm connected to something. I'm seeing my work in light of something much bigger. Um, And for most people, if they have powerful religious convictions, then some piece of the lives they lead are led in relation to the divine or to something sacred or something that deserves reverence. And what's amazing about this, uh, Dr. Vogler, is the idea, I guess, that the way you just described that, Self-transcendence can happen in any realm, in any professional endeavor, in any art. It can happen in anything. It's just more my focus. Yeah. It just has to do with how you understand what you're up to and what it connects to. You don't need to be a monk. You don't need to be – you don't need to be a devout whatever. You just need – you need a shift in your view. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that – 
in the United States, probably the poster child for the problem here was a, an American writer called David Foster Wallace, who, along with a lot of his friends, suddenly realized that he was stunningly successful and leading a completely empty life. Like he had achieved all the goals he wanted to achieve, and his life was completely meaningless. Empty, yeah. Yeah, completely empty. I mean, it was for him a lethal situation. He killed himself, oh. but um, which is terrible. But, right. Um, well, and you might make maybe that's why so many are committing suicide. They well, they're think, so lonely. They're so empty. I think um, that it is just very perplexing if you've been raised on a steady diet that lets you think that self-achievement, self-actualization, and self-expression are the highest goals you could have. Mm. And then you find yourself feeling um, like you've expressed yourself, actualized yourself, and realized your goals. And all of that is leaves you alienated from anything that might be provide you with a stable and sustaining source of meaning in your life. Mm. Uh, Really, I I agree. And powerful. Um, Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Candace Vogler, and she is is the uh, David B. and Clara E. Stern Professor of Philosophy and, and a professor in the college at the University of Chicago and also a principal investigator on this new project, Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life, Um, that was funded by the John Templeton Foundation. And we're going to come back, continue discussing this, uh, probably this soul-changing concept of self-transcendence. More, more about how to get more out of life and more out of uh, everything we do. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. do. Yes, I do. Sorry, so vain. Hey, um, everybody, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about getting over yourself and uh, honored to have um, Dr. Candace Vogler joining us from um, the University of Chicago. Uh, and she is a philosopher and a professor of philosophy at the, col- at, uh, the College um, of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. She also is um, putting together a, a, a program, a project called Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life, and it's funded by the John, funded by the John Templeton Foundation. She's trying to help us all understand that there's more to life than maybe just you know getting what you want, getting your dreams, your goals accomplished, and expressing yourself. Maybe maybe there's a way to transcend yourself and maybe connect through your history with your family through. Helping people uh, on, you know, by by in, by inventing something, you know, writing something, um, building something that that can be appreciated and helpful to others for that you'll never meet. Kind of a selflessness of this, she calls that self transcendence, and we're honored to have her, Dr. Candice Vogler. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. One of the things that I I found in reading about some of your work. Um, the 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 antidote i guess to this or to our selfishness is um it's it's not necessarily what i would naturally 
think is the fix, but it's really what you're saying. It's virtues. It's 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 go for virtues, not necessarily goal. Not necessarily. I, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, we think that. Um, I think that it, there's. If you have the sort of right understanding, I mean, it's hard. Virtue is an odd word. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it's, uh, it basically points to, in my work and the work that we're doing, a quality of your character that you work to cultivate that basically allows you to pursue things that are good reasonably mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and effectively and in a way that helps you develop the ability to actually take pleasure in being a good person, um, those kinds of things. And so there's four of them, four cardinal virtues that are the traditional ones. There's justice, which has to do with behaving fairly and decently and in a right way with your fellow human beings, but more generally just in your external actions, there's temperance, which has to do with not overindulging Hmm. in things, with being kind of reasonable in the way that you um, move about with things that you find very attractive or shiny. Um, There's fortitude or courage, which has to do with being afraid of the right things and being willing to take stands when necessary for things that really matter. Um, And there's practical wisdom, um, or in Latin, prudentia, prudence, um, which has to do with putting all of these things together in a way that allows you to lend some order to your life. Now, each one of those virtues in the picture that I'm working with finds its happiest home, its natural mode in sort of pursuing common good. What's great about them, about having them, is that they help me to participate in pursuit of a common good of Mm. some kind, which is more than just, you know, the added up sum of individual bits of pleasure or happiness or senses of achievement or something like that. It's a it's a general good that benefits more than just the people I happen to know. Um and that has been the sort of good that people have gone after for some time. Um, usually before me and probably with any luck will after me. So that's kind of the basic structure and this um the, I mean, ancient philosophers, ancient Greek philosophers, were hopeful that just working to have a good character all by itself would be enough to give you um, a very good life, mm. it, that, that there was a kind of pleasure to be had in it. Um, the sort of medieval shift in that, um, which took place largely because of Christianity, um, which is not a minor thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty big shift. Uh, Yeah, pretty big shift. Um, Sort of broadened the scope of things there and made it articulated more clearly, I think, um, an account of what it's like to to lead a fully human life a really good, fully human life, 
and that's a life that is that goes that is understands itself as being involved in pursuit of good that goes way beyond private advantage and individual well-being. Hmm. Even if your sense of individual well-being extends out to, you know, your immediate family and the people in your neighborhood or something. So it almost took it off of instead of you just kind of in your own little world growing a strong, powerful character um, and virtue and wisdom and all of that, then the kind of that the newer philosophy was more that, okay, that's great, but take your character and serve the world. Serve the people. Yeah. Serve the greater the greater good. Serve a greater good. Powerful. Don't just um, you know, it's not enough to just have um, to look inward and think, ah, my soul, it's so beautiful. Right, right. <laughs> it's kind of like if it really is that beautiful, it should be of use to others too. That's so true. And, I mean, it really is. So these are these. This is the I guess the philosophical side of all of this. There's it's the underlying theory and. And then I get, I just think of some of today's psychology is is also still more about you. Come to know you. To thine own yeah. self be true, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one very powerful kind of work. Although, you know, the, interestingly, a lot of the research that's been done around trans, self-transcendence has been done by um, nurses and hmm. clinical psychologists who are working, nurses particularly working with geriatric patients and patients with very serious illness, oncology patients, cancer patients, who are sort of who get who have a huge stake in figuring out what kinds of things will improve the health outcomes for their patients. And it turns out that if their patients have this self-transcendent understanding of themselves. They've got much better health outcomes, um, which is kind of stunning because one of the things that a severe illness can do to most people is sort of produce a turn inward, like you become yeah. hyper-concerned about, the, about your health and then about what your health trouble is doing to your immediate family, sure. usually, I think. Yeah, and kind of, yeah, circle the wagons. Protect yourself. Exactly. Around, especially, you know, you've got one of these very serious illnesses. And what they found was that the patients who had um, a self-transcendent, in this sense, attitude and understanding of their lives got better. (laughs) The older people who were that way had a real stake in their lives and were enjoying themselves in a way that a lot of the other geriatric patients were not. So it's got... It's got its feet on the ground in all kinds of odd places. Yeah. Um, it's also part of social psychology, the psychologists who are working on um, questions about family and generativity and that sort of thing, and just um, attachment to the ongoingness of human life, mm. that sort of more generally. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I hear, I hear all of these themes, and as I am uh, of the persuasion of social psychology and I, I, I had never thought of it, but yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's about this ability of a, of a human to influence lives, other people around them, and a self-transcended kind of higher-reaching um, philosophy could guide me to lift more people around me, even if I don't know them. Yeah, it's. I think that's one of the most important things is just that 
um, you live your life in a way that's prepared to... I mean, everybody is put in some place where there's the possibility that they could extend out toward others, <laughs> toward yeah. strangers even. I mean, everybody will find some moment in their lives when that's a possibility. If you've got a kind of self-transcendent attitude, you'll see those as like opportunities, not just um, slightly alarming moments where you're surrounded by people you don't know or something like <laughs> right. that. Right, right. And, and, and um, yeah, and I guess you, this is what one of the things that you, you mentioned was uh, what Aristotle was talking about, about how everybody should be able to reach their fullest level of potential. Yeah. And and we I guess used to think that that was my potential in me, but this might be more my potential in the we, all of us. Yeah, it's my potential to participate really effectively in the kind of collective pursuit of good on the part of human beings. Hmm. I mean, it's it, good is I think not a private project to be pursued off in a corner someplace. Human good is human good. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of, it, it reaches out past the individual in all kinds of tremendously important ways. How, how do we do it? Um, so I'm a dad, uh, our listeners, parents, you know, grandparents, what can we do? What are some steps we could take just in our lives in the next now, a few days, few minutes, that would help us start to turn to this higher level of thinking and being? Mm, let's see. I mean, obviously, if you're somebody who has religious faith, then um, you, you faith in a personal God, for instance, who you know cares about what goes on with you, or, or, or more than one that cares about what goes on with you, one of the things you can do is pray. Yeah. Um, if you're, for help, I mean, for actual guidance. But another thing you can do is to try to yourself and be alive to all of the ways that the good in your life is made possible by people you never met, people you might never meet, people who might have died a long time ago and suffered and struggled a long time ago, to make the kind of life you're enjoying right now possible. And with children, to try to help them understand that they come from somewhere yeah. and that they are the, that they've gotten these good things and that they're fully capable, not just, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're not showing enough gratitude for the struggles of the people that went before right, you, but yeah. that they're fully capable of moving this forward in their lives in all kinds of ways um, that Sometimes the smallest thing you do for another person can be an enormous thing in that other person's life. And you may never know uh, what you have done for that person, right? I mean, so there's just all kinds of little ways of just being alive to your fellow human beings and trying to um, understand them as seeking some kind of good or trying to avoid something bad, even if they're doing things that look to you pretty questionable, mm -hmm. um, realize that if you're going to have any understanding of what they're doing, you have to see them as trying to go for something good or avoid something bad. 
um, that you're trying to go for something good or avoid something bad, that this is a thing you have in common with your fellow human beings, even if their views about good and bad differ from yours pretty dramatically. Mm. Yeah. Um, and to have a lot of respect for the ways that groups of people try to find to work together on behalf of a shared sense of a good that isn't just for them. It's for human beings more generally. Mm. Does that help? That's beautiful. No, that's beautiful. And great, and, and I mean, great ideas. And I love, I love your wording, alive to life. Just be alive yeah. to these ideas. And a lot of this, I guess, is just get your mind engaged in thoughts uh, bigger than you, past, present, and future. Yeah, and just move around in a way that sort of treats your fellow human beings as worthy. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, there's a there's a Protestant theologian um, uh, called Bonhoeffer who basically was of the view that the most important thing about the community he was trying to build was that every human being he met was a human being for whom Jesus died. Hmm. That's a way of thinking about your fellow human beings. Totally. Super unusual. No, totally. That's the way that you approach your fellow human beings. You're approaching your fellow human beings in a really powerful way. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Well, Dr. Candace Vogler, we appreciate you. That, I I mean, yeah, you've helped us, I think, transcend our thinking. And um, what, where can we go to find out more about your program and your project um, and and just keep up with it? um, Well, we've got a website. The the website is uh, edu. We've also got a virtue blog, which is probably one of the most interesting things to check in on. It's called, if you, if you uh, search the virtue, com. that's us. Okay. Um, and we've got, we update that blog a few times a week. Oh, great. Our scholars contribute to it. We contribute to it. Um, so just, if, it, it, it's a, possible source of like little food for thoughts moments. Yeah, beautiful. We appreciate you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Candace Vogler, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Everybody, go check out that, thevirtueblog.com. Um, Just Google that. You'll get, you'll get to the work. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Doesn't it make you want to just try harder, to be better? Um, and boy, you know, we can make fun of the selfie idea, but in the end, what it's about is... It's about reaching our potential. It's about connecting to different um, parts of our existence and recognizing that everyone around us, uh, they're worthy. They're worthy. They may not even know it, right? But they're worthy because uh, they're just fellow travelers. Stick with us. Helping you see the good in the world right here on The Matt Townsend Show. It's that time, folks, for a, for a mind bender, we call it. McKenna Baus is in the house. McKenna is one of our great producers, and then she left us to go do some major internships this last summer. And you're back. I am back. And She's it is back. Good to be here. Good to have you here. And you're going to help us. We, we call these mind benders because a lot of times 
we we tend to only think one way mm-hmm. and we kind of think that that one way is the right way. For example, we hear a lot about it's it's in Yellowstone Park is where the a lot of uh, ranchers have had problems with wolves. The wolves come out of the park. They then decimate their stock, their herds, and then they go back up into the park and they're protected. And there's been big fights in the West about kill the wolves, get rid of the wolves, all these things. Exactly. But there's but you're saying there may be a little mind bender here. Exactly. Another way yep. to do it. So um, what we've seen recently is um, in sort of the British um, Columbia area and in Idaho, there has been really big issues where the native mountain caribou population has just been decimated by yeah. wolves. The wolves are hunting to a point where it is just not sustainable yeah. and there's this risk in a lot of people's minds that you know we may lose the mountain caribou completely and so in the past the traditional way of thinking was okay well the wolves are hunting the caribou right. so hunt the wolves that's right that will solve the problem but they don't really want you know a lot of scientists are thinking we don't really want to do that yeah. you could actually and, arm the caribou I mean, that that is definitely one way of... But with their little things. hoofs, it's really hard to pull that trigger. Yeah, I don't know if that's the most effective. Just an idea. Um, but what they've actually discovered is if you increase hunting permits for moose... Oh, interesting, because there's out. a system here. Exactly. And so what we're going to see is this sort of cycle of we've been treating a symptom yeah. and not the cause. Yeah. And so... F- wildfires, logging, things like that has gotten rid of a lot of the big trees down in the area where these caribou traditionally live, which has left a lot of shrubs, which is what the moose eat. And so moose, which have never lived in these areas, have been moving in tons, just like, I mean, absolutely flooding the area. And the wolves, which are the moose's natural predator, come right along with them. And then they start hunting the caribou. Because the caribou are an easier target, I guess, than a moose. Yeah, much easier target. Yeah, the moose has a big rack. Exactly. Yeah. And so what they have discovered is over the past 10 years, they've been sort of conducting this study where they had two mm. really similar areas. And in one part of that area, in one of those areas, they said, okay, we're going to you know, increase the hunting permit for a moose by like tenfold. Yeah. And then in the other area, we're not going to affect it. And – in the areas where moose hunting was, you know, increased, we see the caribou population just surge up and become sustainable. See what happens? It's systems thinking. Exactly. It's not one cause, one effect. It's multiple cause, multiple effect. And we got to think bigger than one thing. Exactly. I think – and there's a lot, you know, that we can learn from this in, in terms of our regular lives. Yeah. Look at treating things holistically yeah. as opposed to just doing Band-Aid solutions. And you can always arm the caribou. Always an option. <laughs> McKenna Bouse, we call her Bouse in the house. She's the uh, she's the mind bender, and she did it for us again there. Great insight, McKenna. Thanks, and good to have you back. Glad to be here. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Yes, yes, yes. Happy Video Games Day, folks. Uh, today is the day. You really need to get that old video game player uh, game system out and start playing. 
That's how little I play it. I don't even know what to call it. Nintendo just announced the Super Nintendo Classic <gasps> will be put back on the market. So they're going back to Super Nintendo. Well, they had the original Nintendo, a mini Nintendo, yeah. last year. Sold out immediately, right? right? Now they're going to do a Super Nintendo, which oh. is the next one. And then hopefully they get back to the six, Nintendo 64, which was a, a cool system. Did they fix the issue where you have to pause the game in order to keep playing it? Oh, instead of being able to actually save your, yes. your progress? Uh, probably not. Because that Darn would it. take away from the nostalgia of the games <laughs> that really were kind of, you know, functionally <laughs> Running difficult. up the electricity, Bill. Do you think um, – it, it seems counterintuitive that they would actually go back. I mean, I get it. It's a great selling point to go back to the old systems. Right. But then you don't need the new systems. No, Maybe, you do. Do you? Oh, you still do. I mean, we oh, just, because you want to play those higher end video games, with right? More but you also, and, but the the kids want the new stuff. The adults are looking. Hey, remember when I was a kid? And you have yeah. these other games. Yeah, I think they only have a certain number of games that you can play on these yeah. systems, right? They're limited, yeah. which leads to more complaints. Hold on, people, so what, like, what is the price point? A lot less expensive? No. Oh no! Why not? Why would they do that? It just seems like you're getting ripped off. No, they're, you you pay for nostalgia. Yeah, but couldn't you? Can't you go get the old games to play on the new one? No, no, because no, it's a smaller they're console. Not, they're not backwards compatible. Well, I know, but they easily could be. It seems like. Oh yeah, it's just a matter of doing it, but they won't. Yeah. So people actually care enough about this to buy three of the same units, even though they've outgrown two of the previous units. Sure. Just to go back and have a nostalgic moment right. with Mario and Luigi. Yeah. Oh, come on! You could actually just play it on your computer. There's plenty of websites that let you just go play the game, but people yeah. want to play it on the original unit. You yeah. can buy them through your Wii, yeah. which My is what? also kind of My out, outdated a little bit. Nintendo Wii. It's a video game system. W-I-I, -I, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yes. Good. Gosh, I got I to gotta get up to date on this. No, you don't. Well, Wii, Wii, Wii. Wii is pretty old. We his his English is horrible. We oui, we oui. we is pretty old. We um my son, they all still play Nintendo, and we have games that are really and valuable. They, they all still work. Yeah, you've got Paperboy. We never had Paperboy. Oh, but we have like Marble Madness. No, we don't. Wow, no, we had fun games. Wow, Tecmo Super Bowl. No. That was a cool game. Anyway, those were good times. Uh, Contra. You, oh, Contra. You had Contra, right? Metroid? No. None of those? We, we, we had uh, Mike Tyson Punch-Out. Oh, Punch-Out. Okay. Mm. So you've named one fun game. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, the fun game. Just the one. Yeah, the, the one fun game. Okay. Anyway, uh, video game day. So celebrate it. Get out there. Have a party. Pull out the old games, blow off the disc, what do they call it? blow off the cartridge, and then slam it in. Or so, you get a Q-tip, dip it in some alcohol and rub it on the inside of the console or yeah, the, the game. That seems like it's easy. I think, I think they weren't made for that. They were made to blow on and then slam in the yeah. console. Or you, you knock on the side of the game. No, you blow. Slam. Low slam. Well, the slam was always a part of it. By the way, the funny thing is, it just dawned on me that was that generation's eight-track tape. It was the rest of the world. It's a good point. We, you know, the older generation, we got to deal with eight-track, eight but these kids had to blow and slam. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, we'll be talking about that. And by the way, also talking about uh, healthy aging, which is why we is such a valuable. 
device because you can actually do exercise programs to Wii. You can play tennis where you have to actually work up a sweat on Wii. Well, sort of. Uh, we we bought one of those Wii Fit boards. We found out very quickly that the Wii is not a great source of the burning U calories or, the or exercise. It's more of in the sense of, say, like a rest home. Yeah. Where you need people to stand up, sit down, stand up, sit yeah. down, and that's the exercise for the day. That's good. That's a good a good way to use it. If but the, for everyone else, you need to actually leave your house. Yeah. And if the fit <laughs> pad was maybe like a foot off the ground instead of a couple of inches, you know, I could see the You could put the, the stepping foot pad on, on stepping your table. Off. Just put it on your little uh, you know, your your magazine table right there. Just It's all it. a sham. Sham wow, by the way. <laughs> sham wow, great workout. Great workout. So we'll, we will be talking with Dr. Ron Hager, um, our, our health evangelist, about how to age in a healthier way. You don't have to – as you get older, you don't just have to fall apart. You can, you can elegantly make your way into you know, retirement and finally have the life you want to have at age 80. Terry has a big announcement. Terry, what's going on? So Star Wars 9, we, oh, we, we talked about that earlier in the week. Yes. That the director assigned – did you stop the news? Well, because um, I switched over to Star Wars music. Yeah, this, this isn't quite news. I just this kind isn't of newsworthy. Okay. I was kind of offended. This is newsworthy. They've okay. replaced the director oh, yeah. that stepped down we from the unnamed that. episode, Star Wars Episode 9, mm -hmm. with J.J. Abrams. He's coming He's back. He's back. J.J. Abrams is coming. Whoa. So they're, they're paying him a lot of money. Well, it's his production company, I think, is running the whole thing. So he's just going to step in. Okay. He upset a lot of snobby people that didn't like uh, episode seven? Yeah, it's a count. It's yeah. seven. Yeah. Okay. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Who cares if it was eerily similar to episode four? You know what? You've lost plot. me, and I'm sure half of the audience. See, J.J. No. Abrams saved... Star Wars by doing the reboot for Star Wars. Then then he did uh, Star Trek. He reboot Star Trek, brought that back. And so on South Park, hold on, this is different. South Park, they had him try to reboot the national anthem. On South Park. Yeah. Um, because Colin Kaepernick is kneeling, so they tried to figure out a way. They went to J.J. Abrams to save the country, <laughs> and his solution was, it doesn't matter if you sit, stand, lay down on the ground. It's the national anthem. Cover your heart. You're fine. Did they have him do the mm. voiceover? No. Oh, that's too bad. He was just in a house screaming about how he's going to save the national anthem. It was quite the, quite the funny episode. <laughs> it, um, it seems like there needs to be a lot of rebooting. Why doesn't somebody just get really good at booting? What, come up with a new idea? Well, oh, the they always reboot. Everything's a reboot, but you just <laughs> no, need to boot. There no. are several companies in Utah that are amazing at booting. Really? Yeah, you walk out to your car. Oh, and they put a you, boot on your car. Yeah. You're stuck. So this has happened to you? No, but I've lived in places where You've done everybody's been booted. All right, now, now to the actual news. Now to the real headlines with Terry South. Hurricane Irma made fall on Florida's west coast Sunday afternoon, now a tropical storm. Executives from the Florida Power and Light estimate that it could take weeks to restore power to some parts of the state. Over 6.5 million accounts were without power in Florida as of Monday afternoon, a number that represents more than half of the state's residents. Uh, let's say the the. 100-mile-an-hour winds knocked out most. They say, we think we'll see on the West Coast is a wholesale rebuild of our electric grid. This from the vice president of Florida Power and Light. Uh, that will take weeks. Uh, 17,000 restoration workers from about 30 states 
in anticipation of repair efforts before the storm arrived. They were moving into that region before the storm even arrived, all these power trucks from all really? over the country. Yeah. Uh, the flooding from storm surges and traffic congestion as residents return home this week will delay the project. Because you'll see the, the, the bucket truck sitting in traffic <laughs> instead of fixing your power line. Sure, sure. So. Oh, boy. Weeks and weeks and weeks to get the power back on. Mexico's government has rescinded its offer to provide aid to Texans affected by Hurricane Harvey, the country's foreign minister announced Monday. Since offering the aid last month, Mexico has sustained serious damage from Hurricane Katia and from a major earthquake, neither of which President Donald Trump has acknowledged. As a result of Katia and the earthquake, the Mexican government will channel all available logistical support to serve the families and communities affected in the national territory of Mexico. The ministry's statement also took subtle aim at the U.S. government's lackluster communications with Mexico, noting that it took the U.S. nine days to respond to our offer for aid to Hurricane Harvey victims. Yeah, you, you got, you've got to, when they say, hey, do you want some money? You're like, yes! You say it like that. And, that, and that the U.S. had declined all, all but some logistical support from Mexico. Well, maybe Donald Trump said, thanks, we'll just put that in the wall fund. Huh. Probably. And then they moved away. After disclosing last week that 143 million U.S. consumers may have had their personal information compromised during a cyber attack by criminal hackers, credit reporting agency Equifax is already facing at least 23 proposed class action lawsuits. The company said the attacks took place in mid-May to July 2017, and the breach involved names, addresses, birthdays, and Social Security numbers, as well as some driver's license numbers. Equifax said it found out about the breach on July 29th and that the Senate... Committee on Finance sent a letter to the company on Monday asking for a detailed timeline of what happened, how they are going about trying to figure out how many people have been affected, and when information was compromised. The federal lawsuits have been filed in 14 states and the District of Columbia covering everything from alleged security negligence to the delay in notifying customers. So they found about it out about it uh, mid-May to July 2017, and then they waited like four or five weeks to inform them, uh. inform everyone at the end of the month that oh yeah, by the way. Did I tell you? I forgot to tell you. So, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll be in court. Okay. Lots of court. That's where it always ends up. Kmart stores are tossing out the term plus size in favor of calling clothes that run above a size 12 fabulously sized for uh, women's clothing. Oh, there you go. The term plus implies that women who wear those sizes are outside of the norm, when in fact women who wear sizes larger than that are actually by far the norm. People Magazine explains. Mm. Uh, when we reached out to our members on social media, they told us we needed to have a better assortment and that we should uh, call it something different, said Kmart's chief marketing officer. They absolutely love this whole mantra of fabulously sized, apparently, but not everyone's thrilled with the rebranding. On Twitter, one commenter said, not sure how I feel about this. I like that there are more sizes, but fabulously sized seems slightly patronizing. Oh, totally. Well, and what's it do? what do they call the guys? Just XLs, big and tall, big and tall. See, Guys that, aren't going to take offense to that. Like, oh, big darn and tall, right? Yeah, but if if the women that are slightly heavier are called fabulously sized, doesn't that leave out the women that are not as large? Oh yeah, they are called not so fabulously sized. Yeah, petite. They already have a, a name. They're good. Yeah, but then there's there's then there's the petites, but there's something in between the petite and the fabulously sized. Not so big, average, and nobody wants to be average. Hmm. The not so big. What size See, is mom? She's not so big, there's just but a, she's not fabulous either. So she's in between. There is a crazy minefield here that Kmart's you know walking yeah. right into. Right. And it's like you guys just you're having all the problems in the world. Just sell all the rest of your stores. Just get out of the way. 
It's because this isn't going to work for you yeah. to call this something. You, you different. can call it whatever you want to call it, but in the end, it's still what it is. Right. I mean, and whatever it is, they already—they're not going to recognize. Hey, I'm fabulously sized and feel great about it. Right. Maybe it doesn't work. I don't know. It doesn't work with other products either. Either you know, when you pick up a bag of M and M's and it says fun size, yeah. but it's this tiny little bag. Have you mm. noticed? Not fun. Not fun at all. Yeah. I would be having fun if it was a jumbo bag. Or the bag, they have an in-between bag between the jumbo and it's called not share, so a share size. Gonna, I mean, who's going to share? No. That's a great point. You just have more M&Ms. Just eat them. You get your own M&Ms. Speaking of junk food. Yeah. <laughs> usually Ron Hager's here. Yeah, he's we not, could usually He's not in the room yet. But his I was going to share this. Lay's potato chips and a Twinkie new flavors. Hold it. A tw- okay. Yeah, so Lay's potato chips, they have... Crispy taco flavored potato chips. Ooh. Creamy, mm. resembling the sour cream and cheddar. Slightly tangy and oniony. Lots of beef taco flavor from the aforementioned spices. Mm-hmm. A good savoriness all around. Some chips were more cheddary than others. I mean, trying to get an even this dusting. This chip is cheddary. But overall, a pretty spot on representation of the taco feel and crunch. I picked up a bag of tangy chips, but I think they were just regular. The flavor was regular, so I'm yeah, not sure what were, happened did there. Did you check the date? Check uh, the date on it. May have been. They the shouldn't be that tangy. The other one is fry, uh, fried green tomato lays. Really? Potato chips? Oh, that's the, those. Are, everyone's seen a green potato chip. Yeah. So it says they have yeah. sort of a mayo-y flavor with an added Creole sort of hints. Oh, a little bit of tang to resemble the chopped pickles in the the remoulade. I guess is what oh. you dip your fried green tomato into. Basically, mm. these chips taste like fried. Tomato, or fried potatoes dipped in classic Cajun, just a Cajun sort of taste. Sauce. So it might be mm. interesting. And uh, for the the the, the uh, what the limited edition Twinkies, cotton candy is the flavor. Yuck! Mm. The filling has a very strange flavor. It isn't the typical vanilla cream, so that's okay. But it sort of has a thick marshmallowy, slightly bubble gummy flavor. It's a lot of ease. And then it says, have you ever squeezed a bunch of cotton candy into a golf ball-sized nub? You take the cotton candy and you yeah, just squish it down yeah. into something more hard. Yeah. And then you kind of chewed on that. That's kind of what you're getting with the... I've, well, never, I've never done that. Cotton candy is just good for pouring liquids on and watching it, you know, disintegrate. Yeah. It's also great to, you know, to get your kids sticky. Yeah. And then you take them to the fair and then they can't... They'll like eat a pork chop on a stick, but they can't get rid of the stick because it's stuck... To their cotton candy hand. You brought up Kmart. Mm. They've got all the problems in the world. Why are they focusing on these things that aren't going to help them in the long run? Shouldn't the same thing be said of Twinkies? Like they just barely came back into right. existence. Yeah, you've got to diversify. They've got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, and hopefully are. a fish flavor is not on the way. Hopefully not. But if you're putting together like if you're putting together storage and you're storing food in case of a disaster, mm. nothing will last longer than a Twinkie. That's a good point. That's and actually a a plot point in the movie Zombieland. Really? Woody Harrelson is going around trying to find boxes of Twinkies. That are still good. And that's why it would work great if they had the cotton candy Twinkie because then you would actually have an adhesive during the zombie (laughs) apocalypse. You always need things to stick to other things. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. Hmm. Which of those sounds more tempting? The green fried tomato Lay's or the cotton candy Twinkie? Twinkie. Twinkie. I don't know. I'd want to try the chip. Mm -mm. I don't think you should mess with the Twinkie. Yeah. I tried the chocolate Twinkie. It's okay. 
but it's not a Twinkie at that point. It's something else. It's, it's a, a chocolate. It's a chunky. Snack. It's a chunky. Yeah, they're not as good. The yeah, the advertising for the chunky never really hit. Never made it big. The chunky, the chunky. I don't see why we have to choose. Why can't I have both? You shouldn't have both. You shouldn't have it's either. The 21st really. century, for heaven's sakes. I'm going to have both. Okay. And then heart surgery. Yeah. Good times. We'll continue the fun straight ahead. Dr. Ron Hager is going to walk us through healthy aging, how to, how to make it to the age you want to, and to do so with grace and health. Straight ahead. for a miracle. That's why Dr. Ron Hager is here. He is our health evangelist. He is an expert in chronic disease prevention. We used to call him the death preventer, but then uh, it, it started to look, I don't know, it seemed it was putting a lot of power in your hands. A little grim. Yeah, a lot grim. Yeah. Dr. Ron Hager is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences right here at uh, Brigham Young University. Today he's going to talk about uh, aging in a healthy way. I mean, we, we, apparently, Ron, unless you've seen any data contrary to this, everyone's going to age. Yeah, that that happens. In fact, I just had a birthday and noticed I got older. You actually look like you're 30, though. Do I? Okay, mm-hmm. well, that reminds me of a quote, one of my all-time favorites from Satchel Page. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you was? That's a great, that's a great question. Right, so... I'd be it, so, 78. So if I, yeah, if I didn't know how old I was, maybe I... I'm older than 30, but you say I look like I'm 30. Maybe I would be 30. If if somebody said, how old you are you? And I had no idea. I might say, oh, I don't know. I'm probably yeah. around 30. Don't you think some people are just more attuned to their body? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, that's a skill. Right, yeah. It's, um, it's, a, but, it's learned, right? But obviously there's genetics too. Yeah. I mean, you, you. I'm sure you've known people who basically do everything they're not supposed to. And, oh, yeah. And it seems like you know they live to a ripe old yeah. age. And you know other people who – Try and do everything right, and you know they die in their fifties or something. Mm-hmm. So, oh, by the way, eating a salad with kale. Yeah, does that help? No. Oh, it died okay. right there in the kale. Okay. Well, the point is that uh, you have to be careful uh, who you look to for an example, right? Because if you look at an individual, you know you could just be justifying, you know, something that you shouldn't be trying to justify, right? You know, like say smoking. I know I know somebody who smoked and lived to be ninety-five. Uh, you know, so it's okay for me to smoke. Well, yeah. well, you know, that probably worked for that person because uh, of their genetics. And, and and since more and more research is being done in genetics, uh, one of the really cool things that's been discovered is this thing called epigenetics. Epi means kind of on top of uh-huh. or above. And and what it means is that, you know, we, we all have genes that may predispose us to uh, illness or disease, but... Uh, those are weaker genes. They're called polymorphisms. And they only tend to express in the presence of some kind of a, a trigger or something that causes them to express or misexpress, which leads to disease or illness. And, and, and the really cool thing is, is that scientists are showing that a lot of that has to do with our behavior. So in other words, it, you know, our genes may be setting us up for disease. It's kind of like having a loaded gun pointed at your head. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's also kind of, uh, you know, a gruesome thought. But, um, but it's not really dangerous unless the trigger's pulled. Mm. And so things that what they're learning is that things like uh, 
you know, stress, uh, diet, exercise, uh, weight management, these kinds of things, uh, you know, if you don't pay attention to them, they could actually be pulling the trigger. And so as long as you're trying to live a healthy lifestyle, you're you're pretty much okay. So you're not – I mean – yeah, just because you're having a condition now doesn't mean, A, you were destined to have it because of your genes. Right. In fact, it may very well just be more lifestyle, right? Sure. And there are there's, – there's some good evidence, some good, some good research out there to show that, you know, the diseases that are caused, uh, you know, like every, every time by a genetic, you know, mutation, a strong penetrant gene that, mm-hmm. that is always going to cause a problem, that that only happens in about 5% of the common chronic disease cases. Really? Yeah. So like a, you know, a four-year-old gets a brain tumor and dies. Yeah. That's not because, you know, they, they ate, you know, too many uh, fried green tomato right. wavy lays. <laughs> right? That, 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 that's because they had a strong genetic predisposition. There's probably nothing they could do. Um, yeah, but, that, but, ra- but, that's but, the but, randomness. Yeah. Right. But on the other hand, that suggests that you know, maybe 80, 85, 90, 95% of the things that do kill us, uh, you know, the most common killers are preventable. And and there's a there's a phrase I like that a, I think it was a Harvard University professor kind of coined this term and then actually did some studies on it. It's called compression of morbidity. Hmm. And morbidity means disease. Yeah. And so compression means to reduce or to limit. So to reduce disease, especially at the end of life. And uh, you, as I said, you've uh, you know, you, you've probably known people who have done everything wrong and had a good long life and done everything right and had a relatively short life. Well, this idea of compression of morbidity in a population, from a population perspective, suggests that uh, if you do everything right or try and do everything right, uh, it doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have any disease or illness, right. but it means that there's a greater likelihood that you're going to have less of it, especially at the end of your life. You've, you, you've probably known people who the last 8, 10, 12 years of their life, you know, in their older age, yeah. they basically spend wishing they were dead, you know, but their darn heart won't stop beating or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've actually known people who regularly on a daily basis say, why am I still alive? Oh. Because their life is so uh, miserable because of the disability that they have, the, the, the limited function that they have in their life because of uh, a disease condition. And so if you can compress that, say, from and, and the average is about 12 years. 12 years of really? disability or, or, or limited quality life, of life yeah. at the end of your life. 12 years. But this, this doctor, this Harvard researcher who coined that term, compression of morbidity, did studies and showed that people who do things to, uh, to limit their risk mm-hmm. uh, actually reduce that to maybe at most a year at the end of their life. So, so like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you're never going to suffer or have problems or have health concerns. But if you can do things to limit those, and and the things he found, you know, when I say limit your risk factors yeah. or do you know live live a lifestyle that controls those risk factors, he's talking about things related to a healthy diet, uh, you know, regular exercise or physical activity, managing your weight, managing your stress, getting adequate sleep, uh, not smoking, you know, those kinds of things. Basic stuff. Basic stuff. Yeah. So it, it's actually a really cool concept, especially. As we get older and older, now there was a an article last year published online in Forbes magazine, uh, a Forbes online article. It was about a year ago. Author Yevs Jonet, I think I said that right, maybe uh, offered this quote from Dr. Margaret Chan, who's the director general of the World Health Organization. Mm. Um, she said, uh, 
with the right policies and services in place, population aging can be viewed as a rich new opportunity for both individuals and societies. Well, I agree with half of that, you know, that there are rich opportunities out there. I don't necessarily think we need, you know, policies and legislation. I mean, we have more policies and more legislation regarding health, and yet we are uh, (laughs) at at maybe, you know, uh, some of the poorest health. The reality is we haven't made any inroads into cancer, cardiovascular disease, you know, different things like that, uh, obesity, diabetes. So while I don't necessarily agree with the quote, I do like some of the other ideas that they put forth in this article. And one of them that I really appreciate is this one, make early days good days. Okay. That, uh, make early days of your life? Yeah. So what that means yeah. is these chronic conditions that tend to afflict and disable people at the end of their life didn't start when they were 70 or 80 years right. old. They started when they were in their teens a lot of times. In fact, uh, there's other research that shows that uh, – well, for, for one of the famous studies was done on uh, soldiers in the Korean War that were killed. D- uh, American doctors went over there and did autopsies on these apparently healthy young soldiers. Now, when you think of a you know, young 20-something soldier, right. you, know, you think of you know, a fighting machine, you know, some, somebody that's strong, that's fit, that's healthy. And they found uh, atherosclerosis uh, in, the, in the coronary vessels uh, in, in like 80% of these Korean Holy soldiers. Cow. Now, these are 20-something-year-olds indicating that their pattern of life up to that point they were the Korean soldiers. No, no, no. Or sorry, 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 the American soldiers in the Korean War. And then they and then they did some autopsies on Korean soldiers and found no Korean. cardiovascular disease or no no atherosclerosis. <laughs> um, and they've even done studies on children, even teenagers that you know, for example, die in automobile accidents. Yeah. And they find as much as uh, thirty to fifty percent occlusion in some of the coronary vessels. This is in teenagers. In teens. Yeah. So, so this point that this author makes, you know, to make your early days good days, we're talking about a lifestyle, a pattern that you set early and you adhere to throughout your life, because these disease processes are multiple decades long oh. in their development. Sure, they culminate in a in a cancer diagnosis or a stroke or a heart attack, you know, in the seventh or eighth decade of life, but that doesn't mean. It just started and then happened, you know, within a very short period of time. Sometimes these diseases are 30, 40, 50 years developing. Yeah. Uh, We're speaking with Dr. Ron Hager, and uh, we'll continue the discussion in just a few minutes. Great quote that he brought us as well is, those who think they have no time for bodily exercise will sooner or later have to find time for illness. That's a good one, isn't it? (laughs) You've either got to make time for your exercise now or make time for illness later. Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. One way or another, you got to pay the piper. We'll continue the journey with more with Dr. Ron on the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. We're speaking with Dr. Ron Hager. He is an assistant professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences right here at Brigham Young University. His expertise is uh, in chronic disease prevention, and he made off-air a great point that if, you know, 95% of people that smoked a pack of cigarettes died in the first week, we probably wouldn't be smoking cigarettes. So there's, there's this gap. There's the delay, right, between, you know, the cause and effect. Yeah, I I call it, uh, you know, based on a popular saying in England, mind the gap. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like pay attention so so you don't fall down on the railroad tracks. But 
there's this massive gap between what we know and what we do. Mm-hmm. My guess is you could go to just about anybody and uh, and if they were smoking a cigarette, if, if, and in, in all sincerity, if you said, hey, do you know that's bad for you? I can't imagine anybody saying, I've never heard of such what? a thing. Yeah, no. exactly. Or yeah. or if you ask them, uh, you know, I don't know how much you exercise or how physically active you are, but do you know that it's actually good for you? And somebody, you know, in all honesty said, in shock, I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, <laughs> so in other words, you made a point at the beginning when we started talking. You said, you know, some people seem to know their bodies better than others. They have this awareness. People need to learn to pay attention to that. Your bodies can tell you, uh, you know, what what what's going on? Yeah, and 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 this gap that exists, I I think, is mainly because the the behavior, the choice, and the the eventual consequence are so far apart. Like I said, sometimes thirty, forty, fifty years apart. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, it, it doesn't connect. You know, there, there's no realization of what it could be. And then, of course, we also mentioned off air the experience of Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, right. with the the ghosts of Christmas kind of, you know, brought him back back around at when he woke up from his dream. It was so vivid to him that, you know, and other people have had dreams like that too, or even nightmares, you mm-hmm. know, kinds of things. And uh, so, you know, maybe we need some kind of, you know, experience or uh, I, I know a lot of people who look at parents or uncles or aunts, you know, at the end of their life and they see uh, how hard it was for them. Yeah. And and that can change people. Now, one of the things I do every year is I, I go down to the Huntsman World Senior Games in mm-hmm. St. George, Utah. That's coming up in October. And after I go, I'll come back and give you a report on it. Over 10,500 senior athletes, meaning 50 and over, come to St. George every year to participate in over a two-week cool. period. I mean, they have opening, closing ceremonies. There's more athletes registered for the Huntsman World Senior Games than there were for the Barcelona Olympics. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. And, and That's they, great. They come from all 50 states and more than 25 countries. Now, a few years ago... I was uh, at one of these uh, health screening stations where, you know, we take BYU students down there and train them how to do all this. It's a great experience. And a a guy comes through for the screening, and I have to know what his birth date is because I want to give him his results based on his age. So I ask him his birth date, and I realize it was just like a week before the senior games. Hmm. And I said, wow, happy belated birthday last week. And he said, oh, thanks. He said, you want to know what I did for my birthday? Now, this guy's 80 years old. He said, you want to know what I did for my birthday? And I said, yeah, sure. I'm thinking he said, you know, I'm going to say I went to Chuckarama or something yeah, like that. Yeah. He did a rim-to-rim hike of the Grand Canyon. Okay. So, I, I, I mean, I'm sure it took him, a, you, know, you know, three days and two nights or something like right, that to do right. it. But the, po- the point, this guy's 80 years old. And then after that, he shows up to compete in track and field events at the senior games. Amazing. And so I take these students down there. You know, these are 20-somethings, most of them. And... Uh, they have a complete paradigm shift. They they go down there thinking that you know getting older means this certain thing to them. You mm-hmm. know, nursing homes, assisted care facilities, this kind of stuff, wheelchairs. Uh, they go down there and it blows their mind. You know, they they see. I mean, last year I met a woman who was 103, <laughs> and she had she won a bunch of gold medals in track and field. Of course, she was the only competition in her, ca- in her in, category, yeah, in her age category. <laughs> she, she won everything she competed in. That's awesome. But but my my point, Matt, is. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of different people out there and, you know, some figure it out and, you know, maybe some don't. I don't know that more policies and, no. uh, you know, that kind of stuff is going to help anybody figure it out. It's kind of a cultural thing. 
And we need to do things. You know, you, you can't legislate health. You can't no. you can't make laws that make people healthy. We got we have more health care laws than we know what to do with. Yeah. And like I said, we're, we're we're not even close to being as healthy as we easily could. be. And we're we apparently we're going to be living longer, right? Yeah. So we we probably need to get on that, right? Because baby boomers, sixty five to seventy isn't old anymore. Yeah, baby boomers. How many are turning fifty five? How many baby boomers? Yeah, 10,000 a day. Holy cow. In, in the United States. Unbelievable. Yeah, 10,000 yeah. a day. Three and a half million in a year. And, and that's not old. No, no, 55 that's is like not old. That's like young. In, in, fact, in fact, 65 to 74 is considered what, what they call the young old. Okay? And that, <laughs> young and that, old. Yeah, that's the first wave of baby boomers. But then they have the old, which is 74 to 84. And then they have what they call the oldest old, which is 85 plus. And the fastest growing segment of the total population in the United States is the oldest old, those 80 and over. Can you believe that? Really? Yeah, their growth, wow. their growth rate is twice that of those 65 and over and almost four times that for the total population. So we, you, you, you're going to live older. You're going to live. And hopefully you can live to the, what would you call them, the oldest olds. The oldest old, yeah. But um, so I guess the key is... Healthy living now, healthier living now. And so if you had to narrow it down to three things maybe, what are the three most important things we should all be doing today to, to make sure that we, we don't have 12 years of, of health issues well, there, beating there are, us up? There aren't many people that are doing this, so it's not, I guess, a, you know, a, a super important recommendation. But I like to say the most important thing a person can do for their, their own good health, if they're a smoker, is to stop smoking. Yeah. So that that that's critical. Smoking kills more people than just about every other thing combined. Uh, next is is diet. You know the things you put in your mouth make a difference. That certainly does not come without consequence. Yeah. And we're we're fighting an uphill battle. Uh, you know if, if if usually if a salesman, you know, the, say the typical you know vision of what a salesman is. If a salesman knocks on your door and tries to sell you something, you, you're kind of on defense automatically. It's like, okay, what the heck's going on? Right. Here? What is this guy trying to do? Um, we should be more cautious like that because there is nothing uh, you know, ethical about food marketing nowadays. Right. It, it, it's a free-for-all. It's just, it's just insane. So you, know, you, you should be skeptical about the things. I'm not saying you need to be pessimistic, but you should be cautious. You should be prudent about the things you stick in your mouth Yeah, because it makes a difference. And sure, it's easy to say, well, you know, I'm young and vibrant and I'm very healthy and I can eat whatever I want now. Well, that kind of goes back to what that article said that I really appreciated, you know, make your early years your good years. Right. And for now you are. Because, but... because it also sets a pattern, mm-hmm. right? A habit. Habits are hard to break. So uh, you know, true. This happens to a lot of athletes. Athletes basically eat whatever they want because they're, you know, they're always working out. They're always so fit. They're burning so many calories. They, they can sort of get away with yeah, it. Yeah, right. And then, uh, and then many times athletes, you know, when they're done with their athletic years, you know, nothing changes. Yeah, then they got it. And, yeah. and then it's a problem for them. So, so I, I say pay very close attention to the things you eat. And we've talked at length about that. We can talk more about it another time. Um, and then be physically active. Our society is geared towards robbing us of opportunities to be active. I mean, you think about it. Any place you go, the first thing you tend to do when you arrive is look around to see if there's a place to sit. Yeah, I got to sit. You got to sit. sit right down. It, 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 that has become a cultural thing that wasn't always a part of our society. Right. Uh, so look for ways to move. Look for opportunities to be active, uh, whether it's anything from your housework to your, uh, to your job. 
know, there's all kinds of things you can do. And again, we've mentioned some of those. And quit the habit that's, that you know is the least healthy. Yeah. Just quit. If you could just quit the one habit that's your least healthy habit. Sure. And then eat right, exercise. And, and make these principles. Yeah. People have a hard time violating principles. All right. You know, I mean, if they truly believe in, that something is right, moral and ethical, uh, I, I mean, don't I don't violate it. I mean, I, I know people who say, I'll die before I do that. Right. So make your health habits a principle in your life. And you one know, that you can hand down, too. That's the sure, great benefit. Sure. Not something you trade off, right? Not something where you say, well, you know, I, I ate a very healthy breakfast. I just had some, you know, some whole wheat toast and an orange. So for lunch, I can have this I'm chili cheeseburger. And this this cheeseburger. Right. So that doesn't work either. So yeah. principles. Live, you know, people don't trade their principles. They don't say, well, it's okay if I rob a bank because I'm going to give half the money to charity. That's right. You know, they say, I don't rob banks. Yeah, right? okay. I'm not a bank robber. All right. But we're a life robber. We rob our life. Uh, Dr. Ron Hager is his name. Ron, again, is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences right here at BYU. He's also the health evangelist. He'll, uh, he'll be back every couple of weeks to guide us to a healthier life. And uh, we'll continue the journey in just a minute with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, finding out what's coming up in their world. Stick with us. Yes, friends, it's that time again to uh, to talk. The problem is we were going to take you to visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. But they they had a makeup problem. So they have to – because they're on television. They always have to make up. They've got a lot of body they sculpting to do. They didn't have the right shade of pink. Yeah. So <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're – <laughs> They're waiting for a runner to go out and pick up some more of their, that pink number 404. Speaking, speaking of pink, I uh, like your pink shirt that you're wearing you. today. I'm sporting a little pinky today, a little pink. Hmm. I like to wear pink every once in a while. It makes me feel young. It actually makes me look healthy. Gets rid of that ashen color in my face. <laughs> it's such a good thing. So instead of talking to BYU Sports Nation, we're going to do some more empty news uh, with our great empty news anchor, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey? The empty news team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. <laughs> so let's start off with this one about the guy that holds up the bar in a uh, – where there was a celebration that was going on. So, yeah, bad timing, just like you said. Two armed men held up a bar Tuesday evening where a group of Baltimore County police officers had gathered for a retirement party. As officers were celebrating a longtime sergeant's retirement in the main room of Monaghan's Pub on Gwyn Oak Avenue, two masked men approached the carryout counter nearby around 5.30 p.m. Monaghan's owner, Jack Milani, said the men demanded cash from the register and then took off. Some of the off-duty officers attending the retirement party gave chase and arrested the two men nearby. Huh, boy, that was a big mistake. Yeah, that was a big mistake. So you you walk in, and you're ready to arm uh, to hold up the bar, and then you look over, and a bunch of cops are there. But they did go to the, the carryout counter, so I would imagine they demanded some food to go, too, just like we discussed no, earlier. I don't think they would. Come on. I think that's too scary. The chips and salsa, they're already ready. They're just sitting there. Yeah, but... Just to bag it up and throw it to you? Is it worth grabbing a bag of chips? Just get the money and Have then you... go buy, go down the road and buy something else. I'll ask it again. Have you had the chips and salsa at Chili's? 
Oh, yeah. Oh. In fact, my baby wanted her baby back rib back. Really? Yeah. Hmm. It's a pretty true story. Do you want to sing that song? No. I'm not singing anymore. Chili. No. No. Oh, okay. We're not doing that. All right. Uh, you also teased this story earlier about a woman who was driving in her car with her goats and fell asleep. <laughs> so luckily, nobody was hurt. Uh, this was in Maine. Police say it happened around 6 a.m. Wednesday. 70-year-old Ann Mayer of Raymond, Maine, lost control of her Honda Odyssey oh. and hit the guardrail. Oh, was the goat Okay. Yeah, everybody was fine. Uh, so Honda Odyssey hit the guardrail. The van got stuck on the guardrail, and neither Mayor nor her goats were injured. Oh. Police gave her a warning. What was the warning? Next time, try counting sheep instead of goats. She was asleep at the wheel with a goat gnawing on her sleeve. Goats are very interesting animals. How so? Well, again, we talked about the fact that you've never milked a goat. Never had the privilege. Well, if you would like, I could arrange it. I have friends with goats. If this were a visual medium, uh, then I would consider it. But we could put it on our Twitter page, at Dr. Mashal. I just don't think it would lend itself very well to radio. No, but whether – I would think it just would be a fun experience for a lot of us to watch you milk a goat. <laughs> You haven't lived because the hard thing is they actually probably like being milked in the end because it helps them, you know, relieves the pressure. But (laughs) the problem is you got to get them on a stand to milk them and get their head in the stand and kind of lock them in. Otherwise, they'll kick and, yeah, you got to tie a leg down. It's it isn't easy. Any other tips? um, Yeah. This is probably the most important tip of all. Make sure you have warm hands. Ooh. They like to kick if they're a little too frigid. Yeah. So – and it's – you know, when it's cold outside. So I always had hand warmers and then I would get my hands really warm and then I'd milk the goat because I'm that kind of guy. I'm a giver. Anyway. Good stuff. See, by the way, this is the information you will not get on any other station. No matter how hard you ask us not to bring it to you. Yes. We, we're here to serve you. Hey, as we like to do, uh, we're going to do it right now. We love to wrap up the show with a hero story. That way you can always see that there's good in the world. And it's a pretty – it's actually – it's just the average person that always tends to step up and be the hero. A homeless man is being praised for helping nab a carjacking suspect, suspect – In Santa Clarita, California last month, the quick-thinking hero tackled the alleged carjacker who carried a fake badge and posed as a police officer, authorities said. That's when a man went to meet a potential buyer after placing his white Ford Tacoma pickup truck for sale on Craigslist. But instead of buying the truck during the meeting, uh, the carjacker took off in it, said Police Department Detective Don Lushin. The suspect was dressed like a police officer at the time. Apparently, the victim saw the stolen truck for sale on Craigslist and he arranged a meeting with the suspect. A week later, deputies were summoned to a carjacking call in the shopping center parking lot. When deputies arrived, the suspect later identified as Acop Oganesian ran away. But the homeless bystander chased and tackled the guy. How cool is that? 
It was the same uh, outfit that the guy was wearing in a previous encounter with uh, with the police. And the, in the Facebook Facebook post, the Santa Clarita, Clarita Valley Sheriff's Station praised the homeless man and identified him only by age of 21 years old. But uh, because he tackled him and got him into custody, he is the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. So you just got to care enough to step in when you can, to do what you can. You don't need to have superhero strength. Sometimes you just have to pay attention and be willing to do what you can do. That's the show, my friends. We are here every Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. And uh, you can catch us if you haven't, if you've missed any of our episodes. Go to iTunes, to TuneIn, to Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. We're everywhere, and you can download our podcast there. And if not, we'll be back here again tomorrow to help you uh, live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Until then, let's take care of each other. BYU Sports Nation is up next.